Um, right, enough of that nonsense. So, yeah, this is Kino Kingdom 22. This is the second start, uh, by the way, because um, my internet connection. It's really, I'm recording in Romania today uh, on, a, <laughs> on an industrial estate. <laughs> I'm in the new Steven Seagal film. <laughs> Actually, that ties in, Rupert, to we can't knock him too much because. Um, He's actually involved in our sponsorship for this week, which sponsorship, which is now helped me pay for this beautiful microphone I've got, hmm. which is why I sound like Peter Serafinowix now. Um, <laughs> smooth. Uh, <laughs> excellent. So uh, you've you've been on a bit of a, a movie bender this week, haven't you? So you've got quite a few to go through. I have. I have been on a movie fry. Eh? That's the only I've never seen. Futurama, that's the, that's probably the first Futurama joke I've ever said, and I reckon mm. last as well. Um, so this, yeah, this week I have watched Fear.com, All Good Things, The Commuter, The Meg, Clash of the Titans, Wrath of the Titans, The Cleansing, The Chase, Body of Lies, State of Play, and Haunt. So it's going to be another 15 minute from us today. <laughs> I have also watched The Cleansing, um, mm. and uh, on top of that, I have watched Splice, Falling Down, Home Alone, Mank, Brain Dead, Night of the Demons, Poseidon, Rim of the World, and Final Recall. I have also seen Mank, you've just reminded me, yep. and Splice, is that the one with Olivia Wilde? New Sarah Ooh. Polly, and who's the dude in it? Adrian Brody. <sighs> have I seen that? I fancy Adrian Brody, so I, you know, mm. I like to think I have. But um, well, um, obviously, before we kick off, uh, I'm just going to get the sponsorship out of the way. Hopefully, then mm. we can get enough for you to have a microphone. Because at the moment, you're just shouting uh, from where you live, and my microphone is picking <laughs> it up. Is your microphone's that good? <laughs> um, so yeah just uh, before we launch into the films uh this week was sponsored by steven seagal's new acapella album contract of violence to killer it was recorded in romania and it features the smash new single falling asleep whilst ordering a chinese <laughs> this international hit is Backed up by a further 10 absolutely banging acapella tunes. Uh, Killer of Violence, open parentheses, like a bullet, I want you in my chamber, close parentheses. Popping out for a kill, holding a gun and looking at it. Wrist maneuverer, I can't even remember the law. A quick five minutes and then a kill. I could murder a kill. Flipping the stairs shot. Telephone call from Romania. My Indian name is Sitting Down, and a live bonus track, which is an a cappella cover of You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet by Barkham Turner Overdrive. The album, <coughs> the album is available now exclusively through Yondex Music. Uh, order online uh, and stream the album from the 25th of December at midnight. And they've included like a, pi- a picture of the cover art. Obviously, it's, it's only a digital release. And I think like Yandex is a is a is a Russian streaming site. As far as I'm aware, I don't know too much about it. But mm. like to, to describe, I'm looking at the album cover now, and to describe it to you, it, it's like it's Steven Seagal, but it's like his face 
superimposed onto like another man it, it seems to be and he and steven seagal is like whistling into a flute made of bullets that have been sort of stuck together mm. and he's sort of leaning on a barrel on a mountain and wearing a like a skirt but it looks like it's fashioned out of dozens of copies of a, a magazine called gun shooter so uh but yeah, I mean, I'll give it a listen. I think he's actually done, I believe this is his first uh, acapella album. The other ones he released have been sort of blues and world music uh, guitar-led stuff. So it's good to see that he's branching out as well. But yeah. Flipping the staircase. Flipping the stair shot. Sorry. Um, let, let me just have a quick look at the, the email they sent me. And that was, yeah, that's, that's flipping the stairs shot is a... Uh, mm-hmm track eight i must admit i haven't listened to falling asleep whilst ordering a chinese yet no um i'm assuming it's doing well if it's released as a single but um you know these days they release multiple singers off an album so i dare say they'll all come out at some point i suspect he just stops singing halfway through <laughs> just, it's just sure. silence it's, it's just a album as well so it would literally <laughs> be silence <laughs> yeah it's just like it would just be him talking and then in the middle of every song like falling asleep and he would just be snoring and then you can just hear through his like through his headphones the the engineer shouting steve steve wake up there's someone banging on the door i think it's your chinese shouting in russian <laughs> yes of course um right so uh obviously that'll hopefully they'll uh, that'll pay enough for a new microphone for you rupert but That's launching nice. launching into the meat and potatoes of this podcast mm-hmm. i am going to talk about Fear.com, which is a 2002 horror film directed by William Malone and starring Stephen Dorff. And I thought her name was pronounced Natasha McElhaney, but it's actually McElhone. So it's Natasha McElhone and Stephen Rea, possibly. true? Yeah. If you look, if you what? look on. <laughs> if you no, look... It's just completely upended my entire existence. Surely <laughs> yeah. it is McElhaney. Uh, no, if you in Natasha Abigail Taylor, December nineteen sixty nine, known professionally as blah blah, and then yeah, it's got the sort of how you pronounce it, and it's like Maclehown, so Maclehown, Maclehown, yeah. Okay. So we'll just call it Tash. <laughs> so um, this is a film that I was drawn to by the the cover up because it's a really sort of twisted, um, warped, um, misaligned white ghost face that looks like it's been captured on VHS. Um, and it's got Stephen Dorff in it, and it's really weird with Stephen Dorff because I remember him vividly from Blade, and I remember thinking he was like, he was quite quite cool. If you remember, he had like that cool like floppy fringe, and he was wearing suits. And as as a teenager, when did I mean that came out what ninety eight? And I remember thinking he was really cool, and then I never saw him in much else, um, apart from crap films. Uh, apparently now he has just been sort of critically praised for his performance in this. I think it's the third season of True Detective, which I haven't watched. Um, right. But yes, Stephen Dorff is in this, and quite frankly, it could have been anyone in this film. So it's a really disjointed film that I thought was made in the mid-90s. And when I found out, like as I was watching it and I glanced at Wikipedia, it was 2002, I was shocked. Um, but it does give us the chance to look at lots of old tech. So this is a film where uh, Stephen Dorff and Natasha McElhone are uh, cops working together on these mysterious deaths tied to this website called fear.com actually it's called fear.com 
fear.com because the owners of the film couldn't get the fear.com website domain. So in the film, when they search for the website on, you know, and like when it's just, mm-hmm. they just type in like one, one, like, you know, fear.com and it takes you straight to the website and it's all yeah. like moving images. Um, it's fear.com.com, which is just weird. Um, and back then you probably would have had to type HTTPS forward slash www. Forward slash www. Get in there. <laughs> but no, then they literally just type in. It's not as bad as like uh, max.com where he finds a gun seller on the dark web in the first Mission Impossible, but it's pretty close. Um, and th- this is a film. I'm not really, there's no need to talk about the plot because it's really disjointed. This this website is killing people. You get flashes of Stephen Rea, possibly a relative of Christmas, uh, Chris Rea. Um, but he's it's full of just Dutch angles and like warping the frame, uh, all the kind of tricks you remember from the late 90s. And there's this like industrial soundtrack, and it's just. A kind of awkward to watch. It's filmed in Luxembourg, and they claim it's New York. It is not. Everywhere they go in this film, when they're trying to solve this crime, trying to track down Stephen Rea, Chris's brother, it's awful. Everything is crap. Like the the um, when like one of the high up sort of um, captains of the police force gets killed, they go to his house to sort of question his um, his wife as to what you know if she's okay and if if he was acting strangely and their apartment is awful it's like all stained walls i assume it's going for like a kind of grimy seven vibe but it just comes across as just like a shithole like the ever it's just like where was this filmed like on an on an industrial set remaining by any chance mm. or everything looks damp and horrible so i mean if you like that kind of claustrophobic stuff it's fine but it doesn't it doesn't kind of suit the film because no. you've got no no sense of geography it's just them go from one awful place to the next and it's like filmed as if it's a cool modern sort of tech horror but yeah. everywhere they, they go is awful and it doesn't kind of match up. That doesn't really make sense, does it? Because I think what people forget about Seven was that the, the whole production design and everything was designed in a way to be a reflection of uh, the kind of corrupted soul of the protagonist sort of thing, wasn't it? It was meant to be, it was meant to be reflective of the, the corrupting evil that was behind modern life. And that was the whole point. It wasn't just there... For the sake of it, it wasn't meant to be a uh, a realistic depiction of a modern city. It was meant to be quite expressionistic, wasn't it? But yeah, anyway. Yeah, no, I, I must admit, I haven't seen. It's one of those films I do need to rewatch. I I haven't seen it for a very long time. Um, but yeah, the the film this it's it's got some like sort of quite nasty parts in it, but the plot um, really doesn't make sense. It's like an idea of a plot, and they assume that the the sort of weird images will will carry it through, and it, it just doesn't. Uh, Natasha McElhone is a really weird presence because she's very. I know her mainly from Ronin, where she's putting on yeah. an Irish accent that may or may not be completely <laughs> unconvincing. Who knows? But in that in that film, she kind of works because she's meant to be a sort of, um, you know, a sort of uh, seductive presence. In this, she's almost meant to be like a like a not a hard-nosed cop but someone determined to get to the bottom of this and she comes across as too sort of um what's the word like sort of fey if you know what i mean yeah. kind of light and, uh, and yeah. a bit whimsical and steven dorf is fine but there's not enough of the plot to it's like you've got these two uninteresting characters going around doing stupid things for instance there's a bit 
where they know they know for a fact that everyone who looks at this website fear.com.com gets killed they know they they look at it and within 48 hours they're dead and they mm-hmm. die in these horrendous <clears throat> ways and then so natasha mackelon says to Stephen dorf don't you know don't look at that website and they have this really weirdly tender moment even though they're not a couple in the film mm. and then and then he literally the second she falls asleep he jumps out of bed to go on the website and boom <laughs> boom puts himself <laughs> in trouble and there's no reason for it people act very much like they're in a film for this uh steven rea's uh it's quite clear he's the killer so i'm not giving anything away but it's very clear that he's got no real reason to be killing all these people in in a horrible way beyond the fact that he just gets to say really unconvincing dialogue about how he's like purifying them and stuff and you're like no this 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 Mm. film hasn't got enough weight to just throw these random random slices of dialogue around so so it really is trying to be like seven then okay yeah it's not it's not very good it's just it's you would think it was made in the mid to late 90s if you watch this i venture that it was probably written around that time and it yeah. took a long time to make because no one wanted to make it. <laughs> Could be right. So, yeah, it's not. It's not interesting. It's not an interesting film at all. The best part about it is the intriguing cover. Right. So often is. Um, <laughs> right. Okay. So that's fear.com.com. <laughs> yes, it is. Sorry, Chris Rea. That's got to be on Prime. Uh, yes, yes, it was, Rupert. It was on Prime, yes. <laughs> Also, I'll kick all of the other channels off my TV. I don't need it as well. Um, <laughs> also on Prime is a cleansing. We might as well go straight into that because we've both yeah, seen it. Yeah. We need a, a full disclosure moment here, though, don't we? Because we, we are friends with the writer on this film, which is right. which is quite lucky because it's actually the best film ever made. So <laughs> it's, yeah. I'm not biased. Uh, <laughs> So the story is behind this one uh, is set, well, I guess like 14th century, like a time of the plague anyway. So this young woman's mum has the plague. Uh, this local priest arranges for the mum to be killed. And then he tries to take the girl as his mistress. Uh, she refuses. So he starts this campaign against her, condemning her as a witch um and turns the villages against her she escapes uh and she stays with this like alchemist guy who seems to have invented chloroform but anyway <laughs> so stays with him and he he teaches her how to use like various natural things to kill people and get high and meanwhile the priest is hunting her down uh, insisting that she's the cause of the plague, etc. Uh, it's a very, it's a very slow burn film, and it's, mm. it's slow burn and character driven. So, I don't know what the poster looks like. I'm guessing it probably doesn't represent it. It's probably uh, got fire in the background, and <clears throat> I'm guessing. Uh, yeah. So go on. So how, I'm looking at the poster. So okay, right. swords. Okay, so I'm guessing she'll. <clears throat> probably be in the middle in some moody pose in the background there'll probably be some kind of building on fire and you'll probably have silhouettes of people with swords and stuff uh, i don't know okay i'm looking at it and what the poster is it's it's here in the middle you're right on that point for that she's sort of looking panicked um sort of off to the right there is it's like an angry mob behind it so there is fire holding burning torches aloft oh, right, okay. behind them but then over sort of looming over her is oh. is the, the the sort of plague doctor in the cloak right. so 
yeah okay so yeah so anyway it's not it's not really some big existential horror or action type film it's very much slow burn yeah i found it like quite depressingly believable actually that especially with the the priest character because that's so yeah. weird that you say that go on oh yeah like because you it's like this person in power sort of almost middle management really and he's supposedly got obviously the weight of almighty god behind him and the idea of him waging this campaign of terror against someone and it's so obvious that he just means to possess her it reminded me of weirdly Laurence Olivier's character in Spartacus because he basically does the same thing well he tries to do the same thing he he kidnaps Spartacus's wife um but he is not content with simply enslaving her he wants her to desire him to play the role of the wife it's and of course you can't force someone to do that so Mm. yeah I yeah and it's the way that the cruelty of the priest kind of influences the attitudes of the villagers is also quite believable she becomes a useful scapegoat really for their unending misery which we have to remember you know this is what 14th century would have the misery of existence would have been quite profound and it would have made people much more susceptible to prejudice and scapegoating and supernatural thinking, especially when you combine it with a complete lack of scientific or sociological knowledge. And, um, and it also explains why she herself, because uh, the kind of backstory behind her is that she had an argument with her father and, figuratively wished him dead and then of course he actually clutched his heart <laughs> like steven seagal sitting behind a desk um yeah so uh, yeah. sorry what are you gonna say you were gonna say you i was i actually re i found this film weirdly informative um <laughs> because when i was obviously I, I must admit that obviously not only we are friends with you know the the person who wrote the Dave who will will give the the random pseudonym off the top of my head of sexy Dave, and w- when I watched it, I was kind of I like films with a Welsh cast. Like I just enjoy I like horrors, and when they kind of local low budget horrors, I do think oh you know there's a little I have a little extra peak of interest in them, and with this one, when it was when they were saying about there was a bit where they mentioned that they were going out to hunt venison, and I was like oh and as the, I paused the film and I was like oh yeah there is actually venison up in Bracken. And I was like learning about my home mm-hmm. country as I was watching the film, so I enjoyed that. And yeah, with the priest, um, it I found it like you say really like quite sad because I I was watching this film thinking that's probably how it was like someone in power yes. would 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 t- turn to the village and and say. I'm going to go in there into that house and I'm going to try and get the devil out of him. I'm going to try and save her and get rid of this plague and everyone cheers. And then he goes yeah. into the hut, shuts the door and quietly whispers, right, if you don't shag me, then I'm going to just make them hang you. And that's yeah. it. That's all it would take. And it's such a basic situation, such an unfair. Yeah. And I was watching you thinking this is, and the whole film, that launch pad of that basic thing, of like a like a middle-aged man's lust over a child effectively like yeah. launches this whole film off and i and i and i like the fact it was a very small it never got it never got huge in scope no. and the, the characters were quite you know well defined like i, I didn't so. I, ha- I hated who i was supposed to hate and you root for who you're supposed to root for there were little things in it like um 
the the way that I love the set dressings. I d- I did like the sort of the huts and all the tools and stuff they were using. And I was, but I did find like the fact that the main character, uh, her like plucked eyebrows and like sort of highlighted perfect hair and full makeup and like false nails. I was like, mm. there but, was you know, a fair you, amount uh, of fresh skin and white teeth and pretty pretty smart hairdressing all around really wasn't there yeah when when it when you go to you know the way that like if you the um the sort of frumpy uh townswoman who's like um you know get rid of there and then she's all brown of tooth <laughs> brown of tooth and yellow of eye and and you think yeah that's what they would all look like and like yeah. the set dressing's so good and like everyone's like come on go to bed get on your dirty stack of hay <laughs> And, and use your fists as pillows like a man. Um, like, all that's good. And then, of course, yeah, you've got this like beautiful woman walking around flawless. Um, I suppose you could no, argue, I liked it. well, given what happens in the film, there could be a reason for her, like, purity. Beginning. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah so, uh, yeah, I thought the, um, the priest, the actor who played the priest, uh, I think his name's Reese Meredith, he was very good. He was particularly good. And actually, if you close your eyes, you can imagine Ian Glenn. Um, the, <laughs> and I, names. But he had, I think it's partly because he had the best kind of character, the most, the most uh, well kind of defined character. And yeah, like his, it's really all about his, it, it's almost like he's trying to cleanse the guilt of his own sordid fantasies. It's like, it's like that bit where, you know, she escapes the village and then, He's like, oh, we've got to go and find her. And then all the other villagers are like, well, why? She's gone now. That's exactly what we wanted, isn't it? And he's like, oh, yeah, but we don't know what that's she's up that. to. And then one of the guys says, do you fancy her? And he's like, yeah, no. I fancy her. Minger. Yeah, it's, it, and then they say, like, but anyway, we have to all go and find her. Um, yeah, I like that. Uh, that was really fucking cool. The main woman, uh, Rebecca Aycock, she, she's pretty good. Although I think that when she starts speaking, because she's pretty much silent for the first hour or so, I think when she starts speaking, she does ham it up quite a bit. But, um, but she, yeah. Well, the sort of trembling voice sort of thing. It was a bit, it was a bit, yes, rather, I, I thought. Um, yeah. And I, I think I may, maybe I stepped off the film slightly when it started entering supernatural territory. Although, I don't think that's because of the idea of it going to that place, but more because the the final sequence, it was quite poorly staged and poor and really ridiculously lit. Like it was meant to be the middle of the night in this like rural village. It's yeah. blinding. You, you, do, you do realize at the risk of swells here that the last, the last sort of sequence wasn't supernatural at all. Well, you, well, we get we are entering spoiler territory here. Okay, uh, I, I think there are parts of it where you would have to say she is doing things which are not physically possible. Okay, it's hard to talk about without. Yeah, I, I had a, I thought uh, it was related to the root, the oh, burning the root. Right. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, but. Regardless, I didn't think it was a very well staged finale, just in terms of direction, really. In fact, I just I thought that sometimes the direction was a bit bland, to be honest. Like you say, the set dressing was really nice. But because this because the direction was a bit bit bland and a bit stagey at times, it sometimes felt like 
um, Amdram at St. Fagans or something, you know? <laughs> You're but, really selling this. Yeah, but no, but I think that's, it's almost like, a, it's quite a superficial thing, really, because the actual, I think with a, perhaps they had a bit more money and a bit more of a stylish director, then it, I think it it would have been, would have been really good. Um, but I think that's the only thing which really lets it down. I mean, some of the performances are a little bit ropey, but the main performances are good. So that's the important thing. Yeah. And like I said, I, I like the fact that it didn't um, uh, get out of that initial, that initial small character driven story. It didn't, it didn't explode out of that into some ridiculous, you know, it kept to its roots sort of thing. So I, I did like that about it. Yes. It didn't go. Yeah. It didn't try and go big scale. Um, so yeah, it's very much in the kind of, realm of stuff like black death and apostle and the witch um reese meredith was actually the priest guy was actually in apostle apparently Don't oh. remember him. but yes things only a small part uh yeah so this is pretty good I, i'd say it's a i guess it's suppose it's a touch predictable but i don't really think it matters that much when it's about more about character and theme if you see what i mean it's not it's not really about a, it's not a, a strictly plot driven movie it's more about the characters and the setting and the themes yeah yeah which i clicked with so i'm yes. i will over time moving on then to <clears throat> a film that i've seen twice now called all good things starring ryan gosling frank langella and kirsten dunst um i'm assuming this is a film you would have seen at some point i've seen the poster and i just assumed that it didn't actually have Ryan Gosling in it that much because it looked like an older film which had been remarketed as like a Ryan Gosling film. And I just assumed that yeah, I'd actually put it on and he wouldn't really be in it that much. You know, like when they put... Um, Kiefer like Sutherland, have, yeah. yeah. Like George Clooney or something, and have like two minutes on the screen and he'll be front and centre on the, on the cover because he's the only famous person in something. That but literally... It was a film recently, I think it's called Evolved or something like that with yeah. Keanu Reeves, where they literally made the film and then Keanu Reeves said, I'll be in it. And they went, oh, OK. And then they just inserted footage of him in it where he never meets any of the other characters involved. Brilliant. And apparently it completely ruins everything about it. I haven't watched it, but uh, apparently ruins like, the pacing and just makes everything really messy and, and like blows everything out in scale because he has to be involved and he's just like in a room walking around in a suit talking on his phone. Okay. But um, Brian Gosling is genuinely in this. Is he is literally the main, yeah, oh, the main, okay. uh, the main sort of star in this. Um, this, what's quite telling, and I've done this before a few times on this podcast is when I see something and I think, Oh, I haven't seen that. And I put it on and it takes me about 40 minutes. And I think, Oh no, I have seen this. And, and, and I know then I know I'm not going to enjoy it because obviously I have no recollection of it. So why would I suddenly really connect with it the second time around? Um, this is actually, and I and I remember doing this exact same thing last time. I generally had um, deja vu because this is a film that was based on the life of a murderer, well, an accused murderer called Robert Durst. And Ryan Gosling plays Robert Durst in this film. The characters have been renamed. I think he's called, yeah, he's called David Marks in this. And he's the son of uh, an, a real estate tycoon played by Frank Langella, who uh, wants... Um, Ryan Gosling to go into the family business and Ryan Gosling is, is pushing against it and he 
opens a shop, which is the titular All Good Things with Kirsten Dunst, who looks gorgeous in this film. Uh, and they just want to, you know, it's set in the, it starts off in the 70s and they just want to smoke pot and just like sell health foods and live like a pretty semi sort of rural life. And then he, he gets, for financial reasons, get dragged back to the city and their, their, their sort of lives start unraveling and they realize how unhappy they actually are beyond that initial sort of honeymoon period. Um, so the problem with the film is it feels, it feels like it's about two and a half hours long. And I'm just mm. looking now and it's a hundred minutes, right? Mm. I was watching it. And when like the main sort of, uh, there's a point in the plot that kind of where it really watches the gear. And I thought, Oh, wow. It's kicking off now. It's been off for like an hour and 10 minutes. No, like 25 minutes. And I was like, Oh, okay. This it's so slow. And it, whilst it's kind of well acted, it's really, he's not at his drive worst where he's just looking in the distance and everyone's mm. falling in love. He, he ha- actually has a, has a kind of muted character in this, but it's like the, the plot is really uninteresting and it's just him kind of, you know, they spend a lot of time, like a good 35, 40 minutes, um, him and Kirsten has falling in love and showing how happy they're together before things start to sort of unravel between them. But it's like this huge setup and then something happens and then it's kind of deals with the aftermath of this event and how it, uh, what Ryan Gosling's character goes on to do and how it impacts those around him. And I was watching it just thinking, this is really uninteresting. This is like a really boring story almost like one of those true you know how we don't like those um unsolved mysteries things mm-hmm. because you think well I, I know like by definition i'm going to be disappointed by it because there's no there's no yeah. narrative endpoint. i got that feeling from this film and what was even more strange is when i read up about the actual robert durst he is a much more kind of eccentric uh an interesting character than ryan gosling is in this film and like the story is much more interesting kind of offline when you just like read into it it's a quite it's quite astonishing stuff that happens but even these um things that happen in actual real life that are like baffling and like the, the um the choices that certain characters make and like how how they how they kind of claim they weren't involved in these things and then you watch the film and you're like but you've just made it boring you've you've just like taken all the life out of it and it's just there's no excuse like it's hard, really is it? it it's hard to explain there's a certain point in the film that i laughed out loud because i thought that's just that's ridiculous and i'm assuming this is supposed to be like black comedy but it's hard to tell because it's so like po-faced all the time mm. um it's just it's, it, it boils down as the film goes on it just gets more and more into people having really maudling half mumbled conversations with each other and just smoking and like looking out over skylines you think um like, oh, this is supposed to be an interesting story guys can we ramp it up so jeez it's one of those ones that if you watch it and you're disappointed, which you probably will be, through no fault of the acting in it, it's just the, the way it's... I think it must be the direction of it that just makes it so interesting. But the story itself behind Robert Durst is, is really interesting, so I would suggest just reading up about that instead. So basically you're recommending reading a Wikipedia article. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> it would be quicker and more interesting. Well, actually, uh, if if you if you're gonna have a go at me for recommending a Wikipedia article, I'll also recommend a six-part documentary miniseries called The Jinx, which is based on the actual stuff that happened, and it, it is clearly going to be much more interesting than just like a slightly tedious film. 
well you've watched it twice now so that's one for you and one for me so i don't need to watch it now philip baker hall is in this film as well and he and he is in a film one of my absolute favorite sort of small thrillers and i'm just trying to find it now the title of it i always forget the title of it just to recommend it to anyone else um what was that film i'll find i'll find out i'll have a little i'll do some research while we uh, while you talk about your next film he's got a hangdog face isn't he yeah, he's got a touch of the Matt Hour about him, hasn't he? A touch of the Walter. <laughs> Touching <laughs> Walter. Uh, it sounds like <laughs> it sounds like a mid nineties like drama with Robin Williams or something. <laughs> It'd be Robin Williams and then like I don't know, like Robert De Niro playing like I don't know, someone with the mind of an eight year old or something. <laughs> Walter, <laughs> brilliant. Uh, right, okay. On to splice them, uh, which isn't available on any streaming service, as far as I can see. So I had to watch this on Blu-ray. Should be on some streaming services because it's very good. It's from two thousand and nine. It's directed by Vincenzo Natale, who also made Cube, which is a good horror movie. Um, and he also made In the Tall Grass recently, Stephen King adaptation, which I've not seen. Um, so the story is that this sort of young, hip scientist couple, played by Adrian Brody and Sarah Polly, uh, are considering having a baby. Well, instead, they decide to splice her DNA with an alien organism and create this sort of curious elegant but aggressive hybrid creature which they raise in secret into adult into adulthood the creature evolves very rapidly so to kind of avoid the whole thing of us having to wait <laughs> like 20 years <laughs> so it, it evolves very rapidly um and they start to realize that its animal instincts are overriding its kind of human niceness um <clears throat> And they get into a spot of bother. And that's all I say about that. It's a, it's very much a body horror, and it leans heavily into the ethics of genetic experimentation. There's also quite a psychological element to it, um, almost Freudian element. There's, um, there's all this backstory about uh, Sarah Polly's character's um, relationship with her mother. She's very abusive. Um, and that so it's like it's it plays into that whole fear about uh, abused children becoming abusive parents sort of thing so it's got that in it as well which is interesting it's heavily inspired by the fly david cronenberg's fly uh it doesn't quite have the lightness of touch or the humor that that film did but the lightness um, of the touch of walter part two <laughs> Uh, that would be the name of the book, and then they'd shorten it for the film. Um, <laughs> right, uh, yeah, so the, anyway, the the kind of alien child herself, is whose name's Dren in the film, she's a, she's a really cool creation. She looks like, I think, the girl from, you remember that uh, PlayStation 1 advert from the 90s, the really weird one oh, with the yeah, alien the woman sitting down in the chair? Um basically looks like that with kind of eyes a little bit too far apart she also has double knees like 
um so her legs bend the wrong way and she even has wings she's kind of beautiful but also kind of scary and it's really unsettling because the film does go into some quite messed up incest territory so uh i mean the the science behind it is probably nonsense and the protocols in the lab are very much nonsense because they're just doing this stuff this massive secret experiment which no one seems to be asking about but anyway but it doesn't really matter because the the whole point of the film is this focus on this very dysfunctional family um this there is cg in it there's computer graphics in it this was made in 2009 and it's not a big budget film but the cg is mostly holds up and to be honest once dren is an adult it's all done with makeup pretty much anyway except for like her legs and that and the flying bits towards the end um so that's it it hasn't dated too badly in that regard I like the film because it does go to some really genuinely dark places because you can imagine a film like this could just be like, okay, there's a version of this film I imagine in my mind where it's like very much more mainstream and it's like, okay, you've got this kind of, they could have written it so that you have this couple who can't have a child, say, and so you feel sorry for them and then they decide, oh, this is our only chance to have a child. And they're kind of perfect parents, but no matter what they do, this thing turns on them and it's a cautionary tale and it would become like a slasher movie. But this doesn't do that. It actually, I mean, these are people with some pretty un, unedifying kind of motivations behind why they're doing this and some pretty, and it takes them into some pretty dark Freudian places. So that's what's interesting about it. And it's a thoughtful monster movie, I would say. And pretty gross at times. So, yeah, that's recommended. Yeah, I think that's, I think we all know that's on my list. Yeah, I've written it down on my, my book, book O Films to Watch. Um, the film I was talking about with um, Philip Baker Hall, by the way, oh, is yeah. Phil, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's first feature, Hard Eight, originally oh, right, yeah. Sydney. It's like a really, like, really quietly, bleakly dark drama that I remember really, really loving when I saw it a few years ago. Which That's, so that's a film that. Yeah, you should definitely. It's really, really good. And and Philip Baker Hall is one of those people that you, he never leads a film, and he does here, and he he clearly can. So um, I hope he's still alive. Actually, I hope he lives forever. Let me just check if he's living forever. Yeah, he's living forever. He is eighty nine. In all fairness, he's always looked like he's in his yeah. early seventies. Anyway. So the basis um, of your theory that he's going to live forever is because he's still alive. Yeah, what more proof do you need? I mean, he's here and he's old. It's, it's about just, as good as the science in Splice, to be honest. So. <laughs> um, I would allow, now like to talk about the 2018 action thriller film The Commuter, starring Liam Neeson. Now, I like Liam Neeson, right? I like looking at his face, and I like to listen to his unplaceable accent. But I realise that you know, with The Commuter now, he's done like the kind of old, sort of upper middle-aged man on a plane, now on a train... He's probably done one in a taxi. I think he did one on a unicycle. So it's like it's just him on different modes of public transport getting like dragged into into uh, espionage thrillers. And whilst um, I put this on and when I thought, oh, OK, this is just going to be like, you know, what was it, non-stop, but just on a train. 
it was much better than nonstop, mainly because it wasn't Liam Neeson just constantly looking at texts on a phone that appear on the screen really irritatingly. So this is, and also this film has Patrick Wilson, our boy Pat, and Sam Neill. Oh my God, what a film. So it starts off with Liam Neeson um, as it a... Like um, it's, the same, it's the same director as nonstop, I presume, is it? Is it? Well, the director is... Uh, it's like, is it Jaume Colessera? <laughs> I don't know how you say his name. <laughs> that sounds like him. Yeah, he's done a few. And unknown. Especially. Oh, God, yeah, yeah, unknown. Oh, actually, he did Orphan. He did what, sorry? Orphan, that film that you realized a couple of weeks yeah. ago. Well, I think he's a good... He, he's clearly influenced by Hitchcock. So he has a good... He has a good eye for building tension, and he does craft a good set piece. But my God, he makes some like the the underpinning to all this kind of style is so generic. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, I'm just looking. He did he literally did all the films I've watched with Liam Neeson in the last year: <laughs> Unknown, Nonstop, Run All Night, and The Commuter. Um, but this, I think this was well, Run All Night was the one I, I really didn't like, and that had um, Joel Kinnaman in it, who I, whom I fancy. And I'm just, I'm just refreshing my mind with unknown. Yeah, I think this is the best of the Liam Neeson action films because it, yeah. <clears throat> it just. Sorry, let me go back on my my notes. Um, yeah, it's Liam Neeson. He is a, an ex cop who is now just works in an insurance company. Sixty years old, loses his job. He looks fantastic, by the way, because he says in the film, "Oh yeah, I'm. You know, I've, how can you fire me? I'm so close to retirement. I'm sixty. And Faye said. Oh wow, he looks awesome for sixty. And then I worked out at the time of the filming, he was sixty-six. I was like, you, you could easily pass with someone like who's fifty. Anyway, so yeah, um, yeah, because what he should have said when he was like tearing up, saying oh, to to his boss, so how can you fire me? I, I, you know, I need this job. And he's like, you're sixty. You look fantastic. Can we go on a date? Um, so it's yeah, he's he's uh, on the loses his job as he's on the you know the titular commute home, which seems to take a thousand years. Um, he gets. Uh, uh, into a conversation with Vera Farmiga who says who sort of puts up a um, like a metaphorical sort of you know what would you do if you know you went you had to find someone called Prin on this train who's got a bag that we need uh, and if you went into the bathroom there's $25,000 in a envelope hidden in the vent kind of thing and of course he finds the money and gets dragged into it and it's pretty it's pretty straightforward that plot wise but it it really is tense um it's got one of those um it's one of those films where obviously he's on a train of a few carriages trying to find this person before they get off mm. um, and there are so many moments when like people are after him and he's looking around the train carriage trying to find someone to hide and you think there's nowhere Liam there's nowhere there's a train <laughs> he's like and then he it's does box really in it yeah, he's like, oh, if, it, if it did that, if, if those chase sequences kept happening every fifteen minutes, and it's him like sweatily like going into a different carriage with someone like running behind him, and he looks around, and then a voiceover goes, "The bugs," <laughs> every time. Of course, the bugs. Um, yeah, <laughs> and then like when they walk into an empty carriage and they're like looking around for him, and then it just cuts to his eyes, and it just. I hope they don't know I'm in the bugs. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. Uh, so anyway, yes, um, it, it does happen a few times where you think you've got nowhere to go and he finds someone, you're like, oh, okay, that's kind of cool, unbelievable. Um, 
and he does seem like someone kind of at the end of his tether getting dragged into something you know he really doesn't want to be involved in and when he does try to sort of find his way out of it the people who are behind it just constantly cut him off at every turn almost in a way reminiscent of christopher walken in nick of time <laughs> where, where, we're like johnny depp will say to christopher walken yeah of course i'll go and shoot the senator and then he goes through a robin door runs through out the back in a taxi to an airport and then as he's mounting the airport like the, as he's sitting there ordering his drink in first class thinking god that was a close one it turns out he looks up and the stewardess is actually christopher walken and he's like oh you found me again did you um so yeah, it's it's just good. It's like it's like a nice ninety minute thrill ride. There's a lot of decent actors in this. Uh, just only briefly, Patrick Wilson, Vera Farmiga, and Sam Neill are like bit parts. It's all about Liam Neeson panicking. And if I you swear like Patrick what... Wilson and Vera Farmiga just come as a set nowadays. Oh, of course, they're in. The... Is it The Conjuring? Yeah, they're in. The... And uh, the spin-offs, whatever they were called. I literally can't remember what they're called. Insidious. I, I can't remember. All I care about is Sinister because of Ethan Hawke's cardigan. That's all I remember about all those films from that era. He wore that. That's card- all I remember about every horror film of the last ten years. Ethan <laughs> Hawke's Ethan Hawke's <laughs> chunky knitwear. He doesn't change that cardigan for the duration of the film, which goes on for about a week. It's the same cardigan. Um, and some of the things that happened in that film would make him sweat as well. So yeah, um, there's not really much to say here. It's a it's a you know a kind of claustrophobic. 90 minute thriller. I say 90 minutes. It felt like 90 minutes because it was so brisk. Um, how long is it? 105 minutes. Yeah, pretty much. Right. Yeah. And it's, uh, so, it's so you, what you're basically saying is like it's the best of the Jean Colette Sarah um, movies with Liam Neeson. Yes. On so public- if you like other stuff like Non Stop Unknown, etc., then this one is the best. Yeah, and I think it's the best because it's the most direct. It like yeah. it gives a little setup, and then the film happens, and it's tense, and then it ends, and it's fine. You know, it's not like it didn't get on my nerves, which a lot of the other ones did, especially Run All Night. Yeah, I mean, I quite liked Unknown, although I just thought I could be watching what's it called, Frantic, that Roman Polanski film. Um, right, should we talk about what was that on, by the way? That was on, I believe, Netflix. Let's talk about Falling Down, which is also on Netflix currently. So, Michael Douglas plays a a white-collar guy who he leaves his traffic, uh, leaves his car in traffic, um, in traffic jam, in fact, um, and goes walkabout in L.A. And he is raging at the state of the world. He's angry at gangs, he's angry at fast food, he's angry at corner shop prices, and he directly and indirectly leaves a trail of destruction in his wake. Meanwhile, Robert Duvall plays a cop who, it's his last day before he retires, and he kind of gets embroiled in this and, and is basically hunting down uh, Michael Douglas's character. Um, Michael Douglas, he's trying to get back to his ex-wife, played by Barbara Hershey, um, for their daughter's birthday. And basically he'll do anything to get there, even though Barbara Hershey really doesn't want him anywhere near them. Um, It's quite an unusual mainstream movie, this. Uh, It's sort of high-minded in some ways, but also unsubtle and quite blunt and even quite dumb at times. 
it was a bit controversial at the time, apparently. I didn't realise this because I was too young when it came out to really realise why it was controversial. Because I think some people saw it as some kind of kind of white male privilege tantrum. But I don't think it's that simple, to be honest, because Michael Douglas, his character, he's raging at this system that has worn him down, basically. It's capitalist system has worn him down. And he ends up raging at people who have benefited from that system, even if they're not conscious of it. For example, the shop owner, the Korean shop owner, uh, where he smashes up the shop over the prices. And it's like quite clear that, you know, this shop owner is just that's he set his prices to make a profit in this society. Like he's not thinking about it in the way that he that Michael Douglas is thinking about it. I don't think we're meant to sympathize with Michael Douglas's character at all, to be honest. I just think he's an interesting, contradictory character. And in fact, the only person he actually attacks in anger. Well, I suppose he does attack the gang members, but they only after they shoot at him. But the only person he actually properly attacks is and kills his uh, homophobic Nazis. So, you know, he has his standards, I suppose. Um, so it's all about these two men, really. Uh, so D- Robert Duvall's character, he feels a sense of duty to others, simply. And Michael Douglas feels a sense of entitlement amongst other people. That's the difference between them. It's quite a sad film because we, not because we sympathise for Michael Douglas's character, but because we see that he took such a different path to Duvall. Because I don't get the sense that, like, especially at the start, Robert Duvall's character is is almost like attacked by his colleagues for being a sellout um, or a wuss. you know, he's not this alpha male type person. He, but I just see someone who's he's stood up to the challenges of life um, in an honourable, stoical and, and decent way. And at the end of the day, at the end of the film, it's, spoiler alert, it, it is the, the kind of soft, loyal man who doesn't swear. He's the one who wins. It's not the alpha male uh, wannabe. So that should say something about it anyway. But it's a really amazing performance by Michael Douglas, despite his hair, which is it's just kind of shock. So, it's, it's yeah, it's like Christopher Walken. Duke Nukem's is Duke yeah. Nukem's hair, that's yeah. And Duval is obviously brilliant. Uh, it's directed by Joel, Joel Schumacher. What's, du- what's Duval's hair like? Um, he has like a comb over. I don't know, not a comb over. No, no, he has <laughs> he he has a standard old man. Kind of. It's the same hair he's always had since he was twelve. Actually, even, <laughs> even in the Godfather, he had that same hair. He might have had a little frizz on the on the bald bit in the middle. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but it's Joel Schumacher, and he knows how to make a cinematic movie. And it, LA looks amazing. It's a, I find it a very re- watchable, rewatchable movie actually, and. And I think it's it's contradictory nature, the fact that you can't really pin the main character down. I think that makes it more interesting than if the film had drawn firmer conclusions, if you see what I mean. I think it it's a film that does create discussion rather than just coming to standard Hollywood conclusions. I always just assumed that when I, I mean, this is a film I haven't seen for a long time, but um, I remember, like you said, it's a very hot, sweaty film, isn't it, nearly? <laughs> And uh, which is brilliant. And I remember thinking that he was kind of railing against everything. It was almost like he feels like he's been treated unfairly and yes. his uh, his own personal moral code doesn't 
hold up to any kind of close scrutiny, but we never get no. the chance to see that. So he is just kind of this, this like this almost um, random force, just sees something he doesn't like and just kind of rants against it emptily. Yeah. Like he yeah, doesn't achieve anything. That's what I mean about that sense of entitlement, really. He's he's going around the place in a very entitled way. And I think this is where it's been misconstrued as this white male privilege tantrum is that he's going around. But it's really just a really damaged, mentally unwell person just getting angry at everything around him and never taking responsibility for himself. And the difference is, and this is what's quite clever about the film, is that Robert Duvall is almost the opposite of that. He is someone who just has a duty, just has a sense of duty to others. And because, for example, he has this really needy wife at home who is really high maintenance, but he's absolutely loyal to her. And, you know, when he's when his kind of alpha male colleagues are like, well, why do you put up with her and all this kind of stuff? He's like, well, I love her and there is a reason she's like this. And I understand what that reason is. So I'll just do what I want. Thanks very much. Basically, <laughs> I've got a duty to her and I'm loyal to her. So, and it's quite different to, it's completely different to Michael Douglas's character who just feels so entitled. I mean, he, it's the ultimate entitlement that he is basically marching home to a home that doesn't want him, a wife who doesn't want him, to see this daughter who doesn't, <laughs> is scared of him. And it's like, yeah. Yeah, you don't get the impression that he was once a good man that has changed. It's like no. he's always been bitter and uh, entitled is the word, I suppose. Yeah, and I think the start of the film is quite clever because it, it draws you in, making you think that, oh, this is a decent, this is a decent family man. He just wants to get back to his family and he's just, he's just having a bad day. But then you realise, actually, no, he's always had this in him and he's been a nightmare <laughs> uh, mm. for his family. Yeah, so it's really yeah. There's a really, really quite powerful scene where he's looking, he's looking at old VHS like home videos of his family, and like it's like a really happy memory of buying their daughter daughter the first bike or something like that, and <clears throat> it's really happy. And he's like, oh yeah, put her on the put her on the bike, telling his wife to put her on the bike, and then he just starts kind of you can just hear him losing his temper in the video. And, and just telling her what to do and like barking orders. And it's like, oh, this has got uncomfortable. This is, uh, yeah, this is not the happy memory we thought it was. Yeah, it's a pretty, pretty cool film, pretty smart film. And it seems weirdly very timeless as well, in its it? approach. Sorry. No, it's a weirdly timeless film as well because yeah. it's kind of a, it's an, an age old situation effectively. So, yes. Uh, the next one from me then is Jason Statham's The Meg. Which I put off watching for a long time because I like watching him in action films, and I thought, is this just going to be? I don't know. I just I just had visions of it being like really cheap and tedious. But actually, I had a bit of fun with it. I think because my expectations were so low. So the the story is that uh, Jason Statham is um, the introduction shows him as a sort of deep, deep as in miles down sea rescue diver with a crew. And in the middle of a rescue, something goes wrong and he has to sort of sacrifice a couple of people for the good of, of the rest of the crew. And he gets blamed for that. And then he starts, um, I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've heard this word before, Rupert, drinking. Uh, so yeah. he starts um, pouring, pouring liquid into his mouth and until he falls asleep, dad. And we sort of cut then to Rain Wilson, 
Rain Wilson, by the way, you know who that man is. I am aware. You know that his wife is called Holiday I... Reinhorn. Rain and Holiday. So Rain Wilson turns up. Um, the ultimate schlub. <laughs> with, um, I thought it was the bloke from uh, Blue Ruin, but that's someone else. <clears throat> um, yeah, he, he turns up. Similar, to be fair. Oh, thank you. I, I didn't. I don't feel too bad then. But uh, Rain Wilson is like a billionaire investor who turns up on this underwater research lab where they're trying to get through this. It's like a thermal block um, uh, down to see what's below this sort of thermal vent thing. And I'm a scientist as well, by the way. And um, and what happens is as they go down there and they get attacked by Meg, a megalodon that no one believed was real, but Jason Statham claims is because he saw it and everyone thought he was bonkers because of the pressure. Um, and yeah, so there's uh, a character gets sort of caught and they call in Jason Statham to rescue them. And the film kind of takes off from there then uh, of, of them trying to decide whether they're supposed to capture this megalodon or and study it or just kill it or how much of a threat it is, if there's just one of them, et cetera, et cetera. And it's fun. It's a fun monster film. This watching this film, in fact, made me watch the next couple, which is Clash, Clash and Wrath of the Titans. Because when I watched this, I thought I forget. Although I'm CG, you know, there's something about CG monsters that always makes me think. Eh. Um, I do love them. I do love big monster movies, yes. and with this as well, that the you know the tension, a deep um, deep water has always been terrifying to me. Uh, so. Yeah, I quite liked it. Jason Statham puts on this performance that is it's quite odd because he's doing his own accent, so it's fine. He's not doing some ropey American one like he normally does. Um, and the the sort of supporting cast all all final, you know, like sort of you've got like this sort of um character called DJ who's, who's a sort of a wisecracking black dude. You've got someone called Ruby Rose who's like a feisty um tattooed burner and it's it's all that kind of stuff but they all kind of work well together and there's a girl in there and i swear to god it's a little uh, sort of um asian girl who is um the granddaughter of, of the main the person who runs the the facility mm. and there's some scenes in there and i swear to god jason statham is like doing genuine sort of smiles like really heartfelt smiles enjoying her performance because she's kind of quite mouthy and it's actually quite touching in some of the scenes it's like genuine a genuine interaction between them which was quite cool yeah um and yeah and it goes on obviously there's like big explosions and tension and sharks leaping out of water and stuff like that but it's not it's not a bad film and i thought it would be a dreadful film but you know the, <laughs> the cg holds up and you yeah. know it's nice it's nicely tense there's some big set pieces and uh, i get to look at jason statham again he's been to the gym he's been to the gym <laughs> yes isn't he? Back in 1997, he went to the gym <laughs> yeah. once. Um, and he did such a workout. <laughs> he's been buff forever. Yes, I watched it at the cinema, I think. Uh, I, I did have my concerns. I thought it was going to be one of those deliberately trashy... Uh, yeah, Sharknado-y sh- nonsense. Yeah, this is why I put it off for two years, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think it does get a bit ridiculous towards the end, but... I did. I thought it was pretty well made. Yeah, it was. It was nicely done, and uh, uh, more deep blue sea than Jaws, you'd have to say. But oh yeah, but that was fine as well. That was fine. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, that's it's pretty decent, isn't it? Yeah. And, it, and it, uh, yeah, it's Jason Statham at the end of the day. It's like I don't know what he he brings an edge of irony to everything somehow uh, <laughs> that. 
it kind of I don't know it just like it, it removes any kind of pretension from a film uh, like you the, it, it, he always hits the right tone but I think more of it is that he's always chosen he's cast well in a lot of films um, where he's meant to nail that tone so yeah and this is definitely a very camp big monster movie isn't it um let's talk about a christmas movie then speaking of camp uh home alone which is on disney plus what was the meg on by the way i'm going to say amazon prime good home alone is on disney plus i'm just going to say there are no there are no really great christmas movies uh the nice guys yeah well here's the thing so oh you mean think, openly about christmas yes well here's, right, yeah, okay. that, that's the thing and i think it explains why it is that so many people can try and use <laughs> try and use other tactics to bring films into the Christmas fold if you see what I mean so obviously you get these endless conversations about Die Hard and then you can extend that to stuff like uh, yeah like the nice guys or lethal weapon and, and things so which is fine um, but of course what re- people really mean by Christmas movies is sentimental family films about the meaning of Christmas yeah and yeah. The, the inherent problem is is that they always seem like an excuse to deliver something very saccharine and sanctimonious. I think as well, look, I was held for years that I, I remember thinking that uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation was a really, really funny film, but it's not. It's got funny parts in it stretched out over, over a long film, and it's because yeah. there's no good Christmas films. You can have ones that are okay or better than others, but none of them are like solid every oh. year I'll watch them all about Christmas. Yeah, exactly. And I, I know that Elf is the one that people point to these days, but the trouble there is that I, I don't believe in Will Ferrell being sincere. And Zoe Deschanel always looks sarcastic, so it, there's no sincerity in that at all. Anyway, Home Alone is not really any different, but it does at least have some charm and it has a good script. And it has some amazing cartoon violence, so that's good. Yeah, the slapstick is solid, the gold. It's so good. There are whole swathes of this film that aren't interesting or funny. Like, everything with John Candy is just not very funny at all. To be fair, he did it for free, so, you know. But, yeah, and they've got that um, kind of infamous joke, uh, the angels with filthy souls, is that what it's called? Like, the old-fashioned movie that they popped up for it. Angels but, with I mean, faces. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Anyway, whatever. That that joke's okay, but it is used at length twice in this movie. Another joke. I, I didn't realise, I never noticed before, but the face slapping in the mirror thing, you know, where he slaps his face and he's got aftershave on. Yeah. Um, that's used twice as well. It's like, okay, that's wasn't that funny the first time. Anyway, but anyway, Macaulay Culkin's really good and he's He's naughty. His character is like naughty without sacrificing his wholesomeness. So he's a smart ass without being too irritating, which is quite a delicate balance. Um, but it's all about his interplay with the two robbers, played by Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern. Yep. And seeing them get smashed in the face 
or fall <laughs> over in a really awkward way that would shatter your spine or <laughs> the Daniel Stern scream when <laughs> when Kevin puts the spider on his face it <laughs> never gets old it's so funny I mean okay it's pretty much only the last half hour which is really <laughs> so old but it's worth it for that and I do doesn't think he, doesn't he do like a warm-up scream like it, it like oh <laughs> like it builds up to a massive yell of absolute yeah, terror. He's so yeah. shocked he can't, like, no sound could come out. The thing is, the spider's <laughs> actually on his face. I don't know whether they use glass or something, but that thing is on his face. Uh, it's a monster, yeah. Uh, and I'd have to say, anyway, that the emotional beats are quite well orchestrated, orchestrated and they do feel earned because there's a whole thing about the creepy neighbour who actually turns out to be nice. And and what I noticed really watching it this time around is the the mothers played by Catherine O'Hara, who's who's brilliant because she's in she was in Beetlejuice and she's now in Shit's Creek, which she's very funny in. Anyway, she the mother's sheer desperation to get home to her son is quite sweet. Pushing it a bit in the second one where they do exactly the same thing, but anyway, in this one it's like okay, genuine mistake. I mean, they could have what you could have had with this film is it could have just been wall-to-wall slapstick and they could have just had like a couple of tearful speeches at the end but mm. I, th- I like that the emotional aspect is kind of baked into the plot here so I, you've got to say that in the sequel i mean they ruthlessly rehash everything from this film like in the lost in new york one is it called lost oh in new york god. yeah yeah it's like oh my god they've even got a replacement for the creepy neighbor they've got this like bird woman bird pigeon woman, woman. Yeah. yeah um Although it has got Tim Curry in it, which is always good. Um, and, and Donald Trump, come on. Yeah, he does rock. Weirdly, Donald, I know it's Donald Trump in Homeland 2. He's got grey hair. It's like, he does not have grey hair now. How, what is that? <laughs> Maybe his hair is as stupid as he is and doesn't know what colour to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that is Home Alone. So it's still, it's still probably my favourite of the kind of straight up Christmas movies. Obviously, once you start drawing in those like fringe Christmas movies like Die Hard and Lethal Weapon and that, things change. But if you're going to look for like a schmaltzy Christmas film for the whole family, then it still pretty much is the best, I think. Yeah. Because too too many of them go straight sentimental, and it's I cannot yeah. stand really like sweet films. So yeah, and and I'm just going to knock this entire conversation on there now. People who say like Die Hard of Christmas, right? Then it's not. It's set at Christmas. It's not a film fundamentally about Christmas. No, I hate I hate those conversations. And people who pretend to be like really offended by it, it gets on my nerves. So yeah. <laughs> Okay. What's next? Clash of, the, Clash of the Titans. I'll do Clash and Wrath at the same Might time, well. actually. So, yeah, I watched... I haven't seen these films before, but after watching the Meg, I thought, oh, you know, I could do with some monsters. And what's better than one monster movie? How about a film more than a film with monsters in it? Mm. And I never saw the original Clash of the Titans. I remember watching pretty much religiously whenever it was on with my grandparents when I stayed down there on weekends when I was a kid, um, Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah. So I'm much more familiar with that film than Clash of the Titans. But I've always found stop-motion animation terrifying, something I take with me into my 30s and probably beyond. So 
when I watched this, I was just, I had it in my head, look, this is going to be CG, and it's going to be 2010 CG, and it's going to star Sam, is it Worthington? Yeah. And the only other Sam Worthington yes. film I've ever seen was Man on a Ledge. And remember I said the two problems with that film were his hair and Sam Worthington. So I thought, oh, this is going to this is gonna be troublesome, isn't it? And in this film, actually, in Clash of the Titans, he's got just like a kind of shaved head. Fine. Second one, he has not got the same. He's got a mullet. He's got a mullet. A curly (laughs) mullet. It's like what? Um, He's turning into William Cat in White Ghost, Um, and he goes to cut his hair at at one point in that film, and and then the ghost of William Cat appears and goes, "No, no, piss everyone off." Um, So, yeah, it's yeah. Clash of Titans. We we all know what this is about. It's a remake of the nineteen eighty one film. Not with stop motion animation, but instead loads of Amiga twelve hundred sellotape together to do loads of CG, and the fil- the story, it, it's just there to push the set pieces along. Um, you've got Sam Worthington as Perseus. Every time everyone said Perse, I was saying, "E, is it Percy? Is anyone going to call him Percy or just me for the next two hours?" Uh, Liam Neeson in it as well. Another link to um, the commuter. Ray Fiennes. Uh, Mads Mikkelsen, brilliant, and uh, Jem Arton, who is pretty. So it's just, yeah, it's just a straight story of him uh, trying to get uh, Medusa's head to turn the Kraken into stone to stop it from destroying um, Argos, the Isle of Argos. When I was watching this, when I was watching this film, I laughed until I thought my head was going to burst because Faye was behind me on the bed and I was watching this. And she wasn't really paying attention. And there's a moment in the film where Sam Worthington and Mads Mikkelsen are all standing after they've gone to visit the three Stygian witches. And people are now, the witches say to them, you're going to fail in your quest and Perseus is going to die. You're all going to die. And a few of them, they really take that to heart and say, do you know what? We're going to shoot off actually, because this this is getting dangerous now. Um, So they, and then they're there and it's, um, Sam Worthington turns to Mads Mikkelsen's character and says, oh, are you going to stay? Um, well, you know, if, if Argos is going to fall and we're all going to die, you know, is there any, any point in going on? And Mads Mikkelsen says, well, I never did like Argos much anyway. And from behind me, Faye said, oh, he must have preferred Index. <laughs> and I laughed. I laughed for about 20 minutes. Good. Um <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah uh, index uh, by the way did some research and it eventually got bought up uh, and sort of uh, got lost in little woods so yeah it's it's all very basically moving from set piece to set piece monster to monster and following the beats of the original film uh, with preposterous over the top acting but i i enjoyed it i mean i don't know if i'd watch it again maybe i'd watch it with some kids in the future but i did like the fact that you know, you did constantly get to see these big monsters. And I mm. realize I do sound like a child as I'm saying this, but that is literally what I wanted to see when I put this film on. I didn't have any faith in the acting and I didn't care about the plot. I just wanted to see big monsters. And it mm. does it, it does uh, deliver on that front. Wrath of the Titans is much the same, um, but just slightly more boring. Toby Kebble is quite funny in it. Um, but I the whole I've thing. Seen about... Wrath, but not Clash. Oh, really? Because I yeah, remember you watched the wrong of... uh, He's got a curly mullet. Yeah, yeah. He's probably growing it for Man on the Ledge. But Wrath is, whilst there are, it's more. Wrath is more about. Um... 
it's not so much about the monsters it's more about the the the, the actual journey so you it, they yeah. tried to throw in a lot whereas it's like instead of just oh we're going from a to b to do this it's more about they try to bring in a lot more interplay between the characters and and you know uh, Z- liam neeson's character of zeus dying and being brought back to life and dying and brought back to life and lots of earnest conversations and mm. and sort of father-son mm. relationships it's like no well, it i want like to see monsters fleshing out the universe we don't yes. want that uh so more beasts there's some yeah so there's there's i'm i've always loved minotaurs because they're obviously they're just cool and you see it in this film for about four seconds and i was like oh no i want to see like awesome epic battles against huge monsters and you kind of manage to take them down in in really lucky ways i don't want to see people having really breathy conversations on clouds i also um will say that um Oh, what was I going to say then? It's gone. Sorry, it's gone. Surely Ian McShane is in one of these films. No, he was in Hercules with um, The Rock. Oh, that must have been it. Surprised, (laughs) frankly. Maybe they tried to get him. What did you think about these films? I haven't I'm pretty sure I haven't seen Clash. Because I remember the one with the hair. And I think I just remember being quite boring. I might watch it on a plane. I remember finding it boring. Um, yeah, and I didn't think much of the the CG. I, the boredom largely emanates from Sam Worthington. He is a, just a boring screen presence, whatever he's been in. And and I've seen him in quite a few things, you know. Like I mean, Avatar that was one of the, that's the biggest film ever made for a while. And yet at the centre of it, you've got this black hole. Uh, you know, and this is, I mean, and obviously he's, most of the time he's playing it as a CG creation, but even then it's, he's got no charisma, even I augmented think, with CG. <laughs> augmented charisma, probably Dream Theatre's second best live album, I think. Um, I will say, so what I was going to say is, I really like in this, how Sam Worthington's character, Perseus, has a touch of the John McClane about him, in how he kind of lucks through, okay. you know, he kind of lucks through these situations. I do like it that when he's up against, like in the second one, a two-headed Cerberus that is just spewing fire on a whole village, and he's just like thinking on the fly, desperately thinking, "How? How am I going to stop this? This is ridiculous." Um, and I do, I do like how those sort of play out. I haven't got as much of a problem with Sam Worthington as you, but then I'm watch. I've only seen him in Man and Ledge, which was tedious, and this, mm. which, and I was there for the monster. I was there for the CG. And that delivered for me. So everything else was just like, oh, that's Danny Houston. Oh, look, yeah, there's Toby Kebble. So I, I, I like Houston's in it. Of course, of course he is. He is. <laughs> um, well, check out Avatar and Terminator Salvation, and then we can talk more. <laughs> oh, God. No. I know what Please, no. <laughs> Come on. Uh, We're friends. Should we... They uh, What are they on? Are they on Netflix? They were on um, Amazon Prime. Ooh. Okay. Uh, should we have a discussion about Mank? Yes, yes, I'm up for that. Which is on Netflix. This is David Fincher's. Um, I suppose it's probably the first movie he's made for streaming. It, I'm guessing it probably wasn't originally going to be a streaming movie. Well, originally it was going to be made like 20 years ago. Apparently he wanted to do um, make Mank after the game. I wonder, I don't know what happened there, but you got to wonder if he was looking for something a bit more marketable because I don't think the game did very well. 
I know. I really, I really like that film. Um, and a lot well, of the game. Really yeah, yeah. Oh, I love it. Yeah. yeah, I really like it. And I, I don't think it did particularly well. And then, but then he, I guess he made Fight Club next instead, which obviously was pretty massive hit. So that's got a, yeah, so it's kind of indicated there. Anyway, the the actual writer of uh, Mank died in 2003. So that shows you how long ago it was actually written. Yeah, wasn't it his dad who wrote it? Well, it's someone called Jack Fincher. I'm not sure whether that is his dad or not. Um, oh, so anyway it's good, yeah, good to see you've done your makes, research Rupert <laughs> it finally <laughs> makes its way to the big slash small screen it's all shot in black and white very much in the style of 40s films not just the black and white but the, the actual style is very 40s Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor of course doing the score it's quite a soft jazzy score <laughs> typically at the time you get this kind of superimposed shots in cars and it, it's very much a chamber piece, lots of scene, long scenes of people talking in rooms, smoking. Uh, and the script is all about trading zingers, you know, rather than it's not attempting to make people sound like real people. It's all all about the zingers. Anyway, so Gary Oldman plays Herman Mankovich, who is, well, he's a bit of a jobbing screenwriter, really. Uh, and he's very cosy in a slightly corrupt Hollywood system. And this is really the story of how he was inspired to write Citizen Kane. And the inspiration is William Randolph Hearst, who is wealthy. It's a very small part for Charles Dance, but he does make the most of it, to be fair. Um, now, Mankovich himself, Mank himself, he is warned by pretty much everyone not to make these very obvious parallels between this hugely powerful um philanthropist yeah mogul um and this crazed power hungry uh guy who gets corrupted by the capitalist system but anyway he feels mank feels that this is his magnum opus which of course it would be um and he's really wants to stick by it because he's very proud of it and really the man the the film we're watching is a story of a man who knows he's not long for this world should we say i swear in this film he says gary oldman claims to be like 40 something three 43 43 yeah. i that's a stretch for gary oldman even i think but anyway i suppose he is meant to be very unhealthy anyway there, no, honestly yeah, so i've he, seen a picture on twitter of mm. of him with orson wells right. and in the picture he's like late 30s early 40s and he looks yeah. like he looks 65 <laughs> genuinely i'll send you the picture it's astonishing <laughs> he enjoys a cigarette or two um <laughs> yeah uh he just wants to leave a proud legacy really so yeah it's all about the kind of but it, he seems like quite a decent guy essentially although a decent guy slightly brutalized by the hollywood system um which is pretty mucked up mucked up and corrupt um i do think perhaps i think we talked about this before that's a little bit of background knowledge is helpful in this film for maximum enjoyment because really i was doesn't take- i was pausing it and um yeah. Obviously, I'll talk after you finish, but I was pausing it because I, I, every time they said something, I didn't want it to pass me by. So yeah. I was kind of trying to do on-the-fly research. Yeah, there are no real concessions made here. I mean, they're throwing names all over the place. You, you, someone will mention, like, Selznick, and you're like, okay, well, unless you know that's David O. Selznick, the producer, then you're, you're 
probably going to be a bit confused as to who that might be. And then you've got like, there was someone say, oh, Louis. And it's like, you've got to guess that that's Louis B. Mayer, for example. So, so it does Louis Theroux. <laughs> the dialogue is really dense and it almost sounds like another language at times. But I kind of like scripts like that, you know, where the language is very much unique to the world that is being portrayed. I always thought the same about a completely different film, really. But I, when you watch Wall Street, the Oliver Stone film from the 80s, it's very much like that. Like so much of the dialogue is completely incomprehensible, so technical and it's so unique to that world. But it, but it's that level. It feels like it's research. It feels like something it feels like people really inhabiting that world. And I think it really draws you in, even if you're not picking up on everything they're saying. So. I guess as well, watching Citizen Kane might be an idea as well. Uh, but then I, I don't think it's that essential. I mean, they, they throw in the occasional reference like Rosebud or whatever. But but I think people should watch it anyway because it's a really good film. I think it's, it's in the yeah. public consciousness. Like, I've yeah. never seen Citizen Kane, yeah. but I, I know all the references to the film particularly. Yes, yeah. Uh, I, I wouldn't, I don't, I didn't find Mank to be Finch's most watchable film exactly because it's so dense and so wordy but it's beautifully made gorgeous to look at and it's often very funny and oldman is amazing uh and yeah and yes he genuinely does look like a man in his early 40s apparently <laughs> he, um, he really can I, look like that i it tickled me um in the film when when they were because obviously it's black and white uh they would just say oh god it's so hot or like, oh, how can you see me in this darkness? Oh, God, it's so early. And I thought, is it? Because it all looks the same. <laughs> You're always wearing suits. And then I got a sweat out here. <laughs> like, oh, God, it's so dark. I can't see my face. Really? It's bright. It's bright. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, I, I really like the film um, on a technical level because I, I think we've had this conversation before that I've, I don't think I've seen many films before, like 1968. So uh, I don't watch many films from that era. So I haven't got any nostalgia for it or even a, a really a full understanding of it and a lot of the films i watch like um what was it the, what's that the lost skeleton of chupacabra or whatever it is oh, uh cadavra um yeah yes yes yeah that we know uh, or like edward the the throwback films to that era not that era themselves itself so what i i liked how it felt well to me um it felt really authentic in how everyone you know how i'm dressed how everything looked and i thought this could literally it feels like it could be a film from that era ramped up to 4k and remastered mm. the problem i had while i did appreciate the dialogue the constant zingers um primus have got an album called they can't all be zingers brilliant um that the problem i had with it was i couldn't get emotion invested in anything in the major scenes where there was actual like real emotion coming out um because they continue to talk like that i was i my um emotional kind of availability to the film was always very superficial so yeah i enjoyed it as a technical showcase um and when it finished i felt like no oh, that was really cool i really enjoyed that but it's probably a mixture of not having any real knowledge or interest in the source material and, and an understanding of of films of the period yeah i i think the bits yeah i know what you mean about the emotional involvement thing i think that's partly because of just the cynical nature of the world that they live in that they inhabit and i suppose there's a bit of 
a bit of warmth was the Lily Collins character. But but what I did like those moments where because obviously Mank himself is so quick witted and he's really good at coming back. You know, he he'll have a comeback for anything and he'll have a joke, a withering put down for anyone. And there's a moment where uh, Lily Collins' character gets like some awful news and and Mank makes some sort of really tasteless joke or whatever and then realises how serious it is that the news she's got and you for a moment you see this kind of facade break and you realise that he is just someone who is trained himself to exist in this world and be and it's almost like a defence for him to to be the funniest smartest guy in the room and I think he even says to himself after she leaves, uh, why do I have to be the smartest guy in the room every time? Sort of thing. But mm. that's that's how he survived in this world because I mean he didn't really write anything high profile as far as I know before Citizen Kane. So um so he's obviously but he was very prolific. So he's been in that world in the Hollywood system for a long time. And I and I, I suppose what was nice about that moment is because it, it shows the whole facade kind of break for a second that defensive shell i did so think the because, emotional moments of a fleeting beats yeah um i did think as well that there's a moment when he's um uh sitting in a chair probably smoking and drinking and his wife comes in and he says why do you love me why are you with me sarah and i thought that's a question i've been asking myself for this whole film mr oldman and then I really wasn't like I w- really wasn't sated by her answer. I just thought, why are you with this man who just mm. you share no you share no like love at all? You just kind of like walk around in his shadow and mostly get ignored. So um, yeah, I think her answer is something along the lines of this was never boring. I mean, you're a terrible person, really, and you show me no love and no appreciation, and yet my life is interesting. Yay! Yay! So, um, yeah. So, but I, I, overall, I think it's a good film, but not. I mean, you think about a lot of David Fincher's films, and I, I can go back and watch a lot of them time and time again. You think of like Seven, The Game, Fight Club, any of those films. You know, Panic Room. You can watch these films repeatedly, mm. and. And they don't they won't get kind of, um and you can enjoy them every time and they were they're kind of easy watches but also have deep themes and that. Gone Girl as well, you could watch that time and time again. But I think this one it's a it's a once a decade job, but still much <laughs> to admire, I would say. It's still a good movie. In so, the same I would say oh. in the same bracket as something like Zodiac, you're not gonna watch that. Every other day. Every other day. Not like I do. Um, <laughs> in Hoping French. This time they catch him. Yeah, come on. Come on, he's over there. Sending Robert Downey Jr. texts. Um, the Chase. Yes, you carry on. I'm just going to plug in my headphones. Hang on. Yeah. So this is The Chase, which is this week from me, a uh, South Korean crime thriller film. And this is about a landlord, a really grumpy, cantankerous landlord in a in a, in a really rundown area uh, in South Korea. And he is just 
completely maligned by the entire sort of township <laughs> and um it's just him going around it starts off with him going around he's in his sort of 60s just collecting rent money off um of people who just um, either openly despise him or just kind of ign- sort of ignore him and just let him do his thing and he sort of befriends this uh this retired cop who lives in one of his apartments because he realizes that he is going to die alone and he's got this fear of just being left undiscovered for days because one of his tenants has been found covered in maggots dead for days because no one loved him or cared about him and he wants to sort of reach out to someone just to have someone who can just pathetically kind of just check up on him every few days to see if he's not dead um (laughs) and that man that he kind of has this quite awkward sort of relationship with but a sort of blossoming relationship not romantic just you know his only sort of friendship he gets killed and the landlord um gets blamed for the murder so the town hate him even more and then he gets approached by a really um bizarre detective in his sort of retired detective in his late 50s in like a brown nylon suit um and he wants to sort of work together to track down the killer of, of of the people um of sorry of his um track down the killer of uh the people who rent from him so it's a really weird film we've talked before about how korean films south korean films have this ability to just massively shift tone like on a dime kind of thing mm-hmm. and this really pushes it because this is a film where you'll be you'd be looking at someone falling off a bike in a you know with a silly helmet on in a slapstick way and then two minutes later you're watching a lot of children looking through a window at like a rotting corpse uh, and you're like, okay so it's got like a lot of sh- tonal shifts but they re- i feel like they really work <laughs> um because mm. it, it kind of it does this thing where as they are sort of delving into this mystery about wh- who this person is why he seems to practice on killing the elderly t- to work up to like his real passion of killing young women um mm-hmm. It you kind of thrown off the scent because you kind of forget that you're they're hunting a serial killer as they have these kind of really funny exchanges who get into these strange situations, and um, it, yeah, it's an interesting movie. It's never boring, and the characters are kind of endearing, and some of the way the story goes is is interesting and can sometimes be quite sad. So it's got a it's like a, a mishmash of things and emotions and plot points. <laughs> Pardon me, the the do really work. Um, at one point, I thought it was going to lose me, and then uh, and then it pulled me back from the brink, and I was I was Ooh. with it till the end. Then, so no, it's a, it's a really funky. What's wrong? Why did you think it was uh, going to lose you? I I got to the point of thinking, is this going to be too silly? Is this going to be like a really silly film meant for maybe some sort of specific? Um, you know korean style of humor that really isn't going to resonate with me but it it never went too far into that okay and 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 it always kind of um it was it never felt uh, you know the, the the sort of cultural difference never felt that gaping as i was watching it i never thought i don't understand what's happening here i can always see when it was supposed to be funny when it was supposed to be sad and um yeah it's it's up in the upper, upper echelons of the south korean films i've seen recently it's another solid crime thriller so uh yeah i was all over that and that's the chase and that Mm -hmm. was on netflix 
continuing the career in Odyssey. Okay, um, let's talk about brain dead. Okay. Two words, not that one. Oh, I've got to say as well, <laughs> the chase as well, it's got a sequence in it that um, has one of the best fight scenes I've seen. Um, you know, I, I was talking in one of the other films I watched, The Forgotten. Yeah. It had my, my favorite gagging sequence in a film where a man goes into a house and he's just gagging for minutes. Um, this has my favorite, like, um, awkward slapping conversation scene where this, this the, the, one of the detectives is quite, not elderly, but he's in his late 50s, gets accosted by this gang of youths and he instantly kind of disarms them. And then he trips one up. And he's asking, asking him questions. There's two of them left, and there's one of them on the mm. floor, and he's kind of kneeling on his chest, and he's asking him questions, asking him why he's such a bad person and why he's attacking people. And as the kid is trying to explain, he's like slapping him on the cheek really hard. So he's like trying to speak, and then he's every time he speaks, he slaps him, and then when he sort of starts crying, he'll ask him the question again and like repeat the cycle. <laughs> and then he goes up to a guy who's leaning up against the wall. They're teenagers. They're like 14 or 15. He's like crying because they've obviously just been beaten up by an old bloke. And he sort of does the same thing. He's like, what are you doing? But this time, he it's almost a Benicio Del Toro thing where the way he's slapping him is like on the mouth. So if you imagine you've got your oh. elbow up at 90 degrees and if someone's trying to talk to you and you're hitting their lips downwards from in front of them, <laughs> so it's got that kind of like sound. And he's like saying, what are you doing? Why are you, hit, why are you attacking people in the street? And as he's like crying and trying to explain, he's just hitting his teeth and on his lips. <laughs> and it looks really uncomfortable so i really enjoyed that slapping sequence <laughs> okay um so yes brain dead uh bill pullman plays a brain specialist a neurologist i don't know if that, a, a brain surgeon let's call him bill pullman plays a brain surgeon and he is hired by bill paxton to go and check out this this paranoid guy um, who's a, a, in another state, in another hospital. And uh, the guy is called Halsey. And basically, uh, Bill Paxton is, what he's really, Bill Paxton has got slick back hair in this film, by the way. Um, <laughs> he is asking Bill Pullman to go and do this because Halsey was, um, he worked at a corporation for whom Paxton works and now he wants Halsey to be rendered brain dead so that he can't leak the company secrets um, so first of all this seems like a very elaborate way to silence someone by because basically what he's asking to do rather than just going killing this guy or kidnapping him or something they are going to bring in this brain specialist who's skeptical anyway to go who's deeply resistant to the idea to go and break his own scientific and moral and ethical principles and go and give this guy a lobotomy anyway so instead of instead of just shooting him in the well, shadows kind of yeah so uh, bill perlman he goes ahead and does it blackmail basically um and so he goes across and he meets this guy who's pretty bonkers um and but he's got all these conspiracy theories going on so but he goes ahead and does the operation anyway this triggers a descent into a kind of alternative reality. Seems like uh, it's a spiral into madness where Bill Pullman's whole uh, identity is in doubt, etc. Um, so it's like, is this, has he woken up to the real reality or, and is everyone else in on it? Um, 
you know, or is he is he being is he being tricked? Anyway, so yeah, Bill Paxton, wow, his hair in this film, and he's got fake tan on as well, and he <laughs> yeah. says things like. He'll say things like, oh, the universe is just a wet dream and things like that. George Kennedy is in this film. He rocks up. Good. Another man whose hair has always been the same. Um, um, you, can, you can see why David Lynch wanted Bill Pullman for Lost Highway. That's what I really noticed about this, because Bill Pullman does that. Incre- what well, he used to do this increasingly like frustrated, smart yet paranoid guy stuff pretty well. See also uh, The Serpent and the Rain by the Wes Craven film. He does bring certain intelligence and humour to the role. It kind of, the film kind of looks a bit cheap and trashy and the sound quality is shocking. Um, I, some of the dialogue just is overwhelmed with hiss. It's really a film in need of a remaster. Does it deserve a remaster? Oh, well, I, I have seen more effort put into worse films, put it that way. So... There's some really cool scenes. There's there's a bit where they start fiddling with this Halsey guy's brain and his memories are triggered and they're represented by these mysterious figures throughout uh, throughout human history, which is pretty cool. Um, and they're interrogating him while he sits there with his brain exposed in that kind of, uh, in a kind of Hannibal type way. Um, yeah. Ray Liotta going on there. Um, <laughs> Touching Ray. Touching uh, Ray. It does aim for some kind of ambiguity with regard to reality. Sort of like, can Bill Pullman trust everything he sees? Um, it's not very elegantly done, either through the script or editing, and his mental downfall is basically instant, but he's given it a go. Um, now, Bill Pullman also sees this blood-drenched guy wherever he goes, and he imagines the guy murdering people around him, including like Bill Paxton, maybe having sex with his wife it's not terribly subtle but it's kind of fun in a twilight zone sort of way it it was basically made in the 80s this film i think it was out in 1990 but it it is very 80s in style and tone and look although it does plot wise it does feel like a 90s psychological thriller for the first half anyway um it's extremely fast moving and you know, Bill Pullman is in an asylum within 40 minutes. And <laughs> I like how there's this big, cheesy twist right in the middle of the movie. So it makes it into a film of two halves. Halfway through, all the rules are out the window and it becomes a lot more enjoyable. And it very much feels like um, something like In the Mouth of Madness, the John Carpenter film, which is a good thing. Um, so... Is one of the characters says by the perception of illusion we experience reality and it's not quite smart enough a film to bring that across but it does have a go what it does do quite well is put you into the mind of a paranoid person because really there's a solid basis for him believing that everyone is in on it which is of course what you'd feel as a paranoid person you would genuinely believe that everyone is in on it and mm. so you sit there thinking could everyone be in on it so that's quite cool and i think with a bit more budget and a bit more discipline and a bit more style, perhaps, this could have been a bit of a cult classic because it has ideas and it has a good sense of humour, has fast pacing, good performances, but it is also a bit clunky and cheap. And so it's sort of a, a, a kind of slightly malformed partner piece to In the Mouth of Madness, really. But it's worth a watch. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm Brain wondering. Dead, and of course that is on Prime. So there's another film called Brain Dead. Is it Peter Jackson? Peter Jackson made a very different film, which is also yes. excellent. Well, uh, that I'm, is excellent. Um, yeah. Because oh, I'm just thinking we have a lot of um, not that ones. And I think we've had three or four in one episode. So I'm just, uh, this is the first not that one of this episode. I'm wondering how many are going to be next time. Um, Peter Jackson's Brain Dead is crying out for a remaster. Like, I know I just talked about this Brain Dead needing a remaster to sort out the sound. But Peter Jackson's Brain Dead, I, I don't even know. I think there's maybe a DVD of it, um, which it looks like a VHS. But that's it. And it and it looks and it sounds awful. And it's such a good film. And it's totally insane. And it's just a really good, fun, like, zombie movie, basically. And, and he did talk about it years ago, out doing a remaster. But he's just... He's just obsessed with tinkering with Middle Earth films, I think. <laughs> um, on the subject of sound quality of films, mm. I tried to watch two films uh, of this weekend just gone and failed on both accounts because of the sound quality. And one of them starred William Devane as a werewolf. So I really wanted to watch it. Um, it was, um, I assume he's a werewolf. I couldn't tell. Everyone was just hissing like a bag of snakes. It was, um, it was one of them was called Bloody Birthday. The other one was called The Dark. And the sound quality was just, I can cope with uh, like dodgy visual quality. But, mm. but yeah, sound is, is bad because it was, I thought, am I going to have to put subtitles on just to understand what's I mean, going I, on? I have subtitles on usually anyway, but the trouble is, is that a lot of these like trash like thrillers from the 80s and 90s, they do not have subtitles when you watch them. Oh, really? Games. Yeah, so it's not an option. <laughs> that sentence, these trash horror thrillers from the 80s and 90s don't have <laughs> subtitles. Key part of the sentence coming up, ladies and gentlemen, when you watch them on Prime. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it is, it, is a, it is a problem. Moving on to Body of Lies, which is a 2008 um, action film with Leonardo DiCaprio, Russell Crowe, and the always mesmerizing Mark Strong, directed by Ridley Scott. So I'm assuming you've got some knowledge of this one. I can't remember whether I've seen this one. Oh, really? Um, yeah, it's a film where um, Leonardo DiCaprio is, a, is a, an American operative in... Uh, I think is it in Oman? Let me just double check. Let me get this right. In the Middle East somewhere. Anyway, let's say Oman. Yeah. And um, and Russell Crowe's is kind of handler back home. Uh, he was who's uh, oh, I knocked something over then. What was that? Nothing important. Uh, yeah, Russell Crowe's sort of handler back home, who is a sort of angling for a, a high level political career, um, moving the sort of pieces from behind the scenes back home. Uh, and juggling a family whilst Leonardo DiCaprio is like really in the thick of it in this constant, you know, live or die scenarios moment to moment uh, in the Middle East. And Mark Strong plays um, his sort of contact out there who's, um, I think he's Jordanian in it. Uh, he is suave in this film. He is a suave man. Um, and I actually really like this because I fancied a kind of political thriller. Um, then I actually did these in the wrong order because the film I watched first was State of Play, which I'll talk about in a minute, which is a full-on political thriller with Russell Crowe. Yeah. And then leading on to that, I watched Body of Lies. And uh, what I liked about this film was it is it is tense. There are some sequences in this film where you think, I would not like to be in that situation. I've always found it, the whole the, the war-torn Middle East, a terrifying place anyway, because it seems kind mm. of like it's just... 
random acts of kind of untraceable violence. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is. I know what you mean. Yeah. It just seems very random and very frightening. And of course, it's so hostile to, to Westerners, especially yeah. in the area this film is set in. So yeah, watching it, Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, he's fluent in, in the language and it shows him, um, getting involved in these situations with, and planning, planning, um, sort of strikes and gaining intel with Mark Strong, but they're always kind of botched by Russell Crowe's, although he's sort of his uh, handler back on, because he's not there on a day-to-day basis, he's just willing to just throw lives away and doesn't understand the constant threat that these operatives are always under. And and I felt like the film really got that across. The ending of this film, I don't often do it, but I almost put my hands on my face because <laughs> it got so <laughs> tense, like thinking, oh my God, something good happened at some point for this man. Um, yeah, I, I really liked it. The performances are really good because uh, you kind of, there's a really nice interplay between um, DiCaprio and Crow because although they're kind of at odds in their, effectively their jobs, they do meet up face to face on a few occasions. They're obviously lifelong friends, so whilst they'll scream at each other down the... Well, Leonardo DiCaprio will scream at Russell Crowe down the phone after they've seemingly just thrown lives away, you know, for no real gain. When they meet up, there's always a, a couple of moments where they You can tell there's, like, a lifelong friendship there, and that does that does come across, that they're fundamentally different people who kind of have a begrudging respect for each other. There's a, there's a plot line that involves um, Leonardo DiCaprio kind of meeting this nurse and kind of not falling in love with her but becoming fond of her and i kind of groaned a bit thought oh don't don't go off on some like really tedious sentimental theme but those sequences are there for plot purposes and the sequences where he is talking to her nephews and the family are like oddly natural and quite Mm. touching um and yeah, it's got it's got some nice set pieces in there. It is a tense film, especially when it runs up to the end. And it's just and it's got Mark Strong in it. So it's a and briefly Oscar Isaac as well. So it's a it's a it's a it's a big thumbs up for me. Yeah. I really enjoyed this. Yeah. Well, Ridley Scott knows how to throw a film together, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, he knows he's done, he's I think he's it. done it before. Yeah, he has. Uh, but yeah. this is this is a, this is a I really enjoyed this one. I might have to, I haven't seen that. I definitely haven't seen that. Is, which is the one where Russell Crowe's the journalist? That is State of Play, which I'm going right, to talk about yeah. next. Okay. All right. Well, I'll I'll quickly run through Night of the Demons then, which is on Prime. Not to be confused with Night of the Demons 2009, which is a remake with Edward Furlong. It's Night this of the Demons the... one set in a cinema. No, that is oh, Demons. Ah, right. Okay. Which is really good, in a way. Um, Night of the Demons is well. Let's let's talk about this. So this is an '80s teen horror. It's very basic on every level in terms of plot, characterization, humor, alleged humor, and tone. It is def- It's more designed to titillate, I would say, than terrify. So that's always a warning sign. A bunch of teens, some of whom look suspiciously thirty years old. Uh, <laughs> Go for a party in a house where some people were murdered. Uh, They unleash the titular demons and they become possessed and they murder the other kids. If you can call the kids. Is there there a scene in this film where a load of like punks have sex in a cemetery? Uh, No, that's Return of the Living Dead. (laughs) My mistake. Carry on. Good. (laughs) But... um, 
the actual Halloween party in this film is rubbish. It's just a load of like youngsters and chinos dancing to bad music in an old house. No, the thing is, no one seems interested in having a spooky experience because this is like Halloween. No one's interested in actually having a spooky experience. Why are you there? Why are you at this house? They're not interested in having a spooky experience until things start to go wrong. So you don't even have the potentially interesting layer of the protagonist wanting to be scared or having any kind of Halloween-themed fun, except for the costumes. There is zero plot to speak of, an extremely sketchy characterization and no tension at all. It's 50 minutes before the first kill. That's two-thirds oh of the God. film. I was going to say, the film Once, must be, what, 80 minutes at a push? Pretty much, yeah. Um, once the gore comes, the kills are okay. They they range from like rubbish neck breaks to pretty gross eye popping. The makeup effects are rudimentary at best. The jump scares are just useless. The humour and the banter is is a bit mean spirited and bullying in tone. And of course, there's the odd racial slur thrown at the black one black character whose father was a preacher, obviously. Um, and and moreover, literally all of the men mistreat the women. Even the very vanilla hero who uh, uh, he, he you think is going to be sort of like the one decent guy, even he's a sleazebag. It's weird. It's, it's, a very, it's tiresomely pervy. And there's constant scenes of teen girls bending over provocatively, kissing each other, doing sexy dances. Oh, there's this interminable, like, saucy goth dance sequence where this one possessed woman just dances really badly to dreary 80s suicide rock. That just goes on forever. Suicide rock. It's weirdly, this film is weirdly highly regarded in horror circles. Really? I cannot fathom it. I presume it's because ostensibly it contains all of the ingredients for cheesy 80s horror. Uh, sort of the music and the the simple setup, um, you know, just the the kills, the slasher nature of it, the, the makeup, the monsters and that. But for me, I think it just, rather than it being like a classic of those tropes for me it just distills all of the worst impulses of horror from that period like even the synth score sounds bad to me oh really? really a bad true. synth score is this yeah. such a thing it's just really shrieking and awful and it's really tiresome and, and and i think it proves that you look at the work of say sam sam Romy, wes craven stuart gordon joe dante they were really skillful at getting the balance of horror and comedy just right and there's a reason why their films are remembered and there's a reason why films like this just well should sink without trace but somehow still have a life in them but yeah it's it's bad night of the demons bad demons Mm. the one you referred to in the cinema is good night of the demons is bad and yes they did remake this with edward furlong and apparently that bombed pretty hard. Unsurprising. It would be. It could be a good double bill, though. Um, is is mm. that? Are they the, this Night of the Demons and the 2000 version Night of the Demons? Are they both yeah. on? I'm going to just say Amazon I think Prime. They are both on Prime. Yeah, I think even Night <laughs> of the Demons Two, which was the sequel to this film, I think that might even be on there. I shall not be watching it. This podcast is becoming less and less uh, of you know a film reviewing podcast with amazing sponsorship. 
and more and more about sort of a study of the misnomer of calling the company Amazon Prime. It should it should be called Amazon Whoops. <laughs> Popped on Whoops earlier on. Watch the horror clap. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, right. Russell Crowe is a journalist who works at a newspaper called The Globe, which is kind of on its way down and needs a new big story to kind of keep afloat. And he is brought in on a story that looks pretty by the numbers of uh, a young woman who it looks like has committed suicide by throwing herself in front of an underground train. But uh, Ben Affleck, who is a friend of Crowe's, is a senator and is sort of um, brought into this because he's clearly publicly overly upset at the death of this girl and it comes to light that they were having an affair although he is married to robin wright so why he would have affairs beyond me and it's sort of he is balancing his personal life and political life and gets uh, russell crowe's obviously uh, quite sort of has a real social awareness about him to try and help minimize the impact that this affair will have on his on his political career and whilst this is all going on other things uh, involving a company called Point Core are sort of, uh, it becomes clear that they're a private defense contractor who have massive ties to the government and also to Ben Affleck, who's trying to sort of uh, close them down. And beyond that, you've got Russell Crowe realizing that there's much more to this supposed suicide with this young girl called Sonia than is we're actually originally led to believe. So it's quite a convoluted plot. It sounds um, like they're trying to pack a TV series into a film. How dare you? In all fairness, if this, I bet the original TV series was just like really wordy and just clearly three or four episodes longer than it needed to be. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I've edited. I'm going to have edited this because just trying to explain the plot. Then I, I stumbled a few times, and I just want to point out that watching the film, it's not recalling it is hard because there's so many kind of reveals. But when you're watching it, you can keep up with it. I did find it found it quite clearly explained. Um, the, the key points are gone over a couple of times because Russell Crowe to repeat himself to a few different people. <laughs> Rachel McAdams is assistant. Uh, Helen Mirren, his boss. There's a lot of there's a lot of dialogue. But Robin I Wright did... and Rachel McAdams in one film. I may watch this. <laughs> um, it's it's really cool. It's whilst I know this is a film I will get mixed up in my head with many other political films mm. from around this time in a few years. When I watched it, I did have a good time with it. And it was nice to have almost like a throwback to the stuff like the three days of the Condor and um, the parallax view, those kinds of, you know, mm. um, es- espionage, um, industrial espionage, political thrillers. And mm. it's, it's a film you can kind of check on and, and watch. There's not, it's not like full of set piece action. It's more, it's more a series of reveals that kind of um, alter the plot direction. And uh, yeah, I, I quite like this. It, like I said, it's not really one that's going to stick in my mind. And I, I'll probably do what I did with all good things and watch it in 10 years and go, I've seen this, but then stick with it to the end. But I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll enjoy it more than that film. I get that. I'm pretty sure I've seen this film, but like you say, I don't remember it, um, <laughs> yeah. which isn't a good sign. I remember his hair. It's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it is good. You, you get a few people popping up, like, um, pardon me, Jason Bateman, Jeff Daniels, briefly. But yeah, it is. It's very much a, a one and done. I think this. I think that if I do watch it again, it'll be by accident. Because you won't remember. It. <laughs> <laughs> so what's that? And where's State of Play? 
Uh, that was on, I think that was Netflix, and that's from 2009, State of Play. And it is good, it's just not uh, memorable. Also on Netflix, from 2006, Poseidon, which is basically a the bunch last of people. Kurt Russell made before he dropped out of the industry for 10 years? <laughs> May well have been. Um, a bunch of people with backstories. They're on a giant cruise ship called Poseidon. I think I guess that's what it is. I didn't even notice that detail. Um, it's hit by a, a rogue wave, huge, just sudden wave in the middle of the ocean. Flips it. A small group splinters off, including Kurt Russell. Um, splinters off, and they climb up through the ship to reach safety. Uh, the whole ship's upside down, and they face various dangers along the way. Um, so yeah, it was made in two thousand six. Uh, it's well, loosely based on the the novel from the 60s, which was, of course, made into a 1972 movie with Gene Hackman and Ernest Borgnine. I don't remember much about the Poseidon Adventure, but I remember it being slower uh, and longer, probably with better characterization and better acting. Um, but it, anyway, that was part of the whole disaster movie wave where you had like Towering Inferno and Airport and things like that. In the 70s anyway here it is it's weirdly short this film it's like it's only 90 something minutes i think but anyway there's there's not enough build-up to or explanation for the actual rogue waves uh, like 15 minutes in and the boat is it's it's upside down there's no messing about <laughs> uh it's i quite liked the bit where they see the wave on the horizon and it blocks out the moon because it reminded me of a book I read called The Perfect Storm, which is, of course, made into a film by Sebastian Junger, I think it is. He mentions this in one of the stories, uh, true stories about these huge waves at sea. And, and there was this really creepy story about, yeah, like this wave blocked out the light of the moon. And I found it, always found that quite chilling, the idea that this enormous thing, just looming thing, could just suddenly yeah. engulf you. And the thing the is, it, it would, yeah, it would be totally pitch black as well. Yeah. So not only you'd be like smoking a fag looking out over the port bow, and then you'd just like see the moon like disappear. And you'd think, yeah. oh, I, I, I know an indeterminate amount of distance from me is a wave that's going to kill me on contact, but I don't know how big it is, do I? <laughs> so, so, yeah. Well, actually, The Perfect Storm, the film from 2000, was directed by Wolfgang Peterson, just like this. Um, it was better than this. And, and yeah, so this is kind of, this feels kind of dated in a way. It's got this very plastic looking CGI. And it does that thing of films from the early 2000s where it's almost it's in love with its cgi so you have these really really elaborate swooping shots of stuff of like cgi destruction and it's like christ it sounds like the 13th ghost it's like um i think the problem there is is that especially when it comes to a disaster movie is it like okay you've got the spectacle but the problem is you're not it really draws you out of it because you're not seeing it from the perspective of someone who would witness it if you see what i mean like seeing a wave approach on the horizon is scary. H having like a, a kind of pseudo helicopter shot across 
the ship swooping across a ship as the wave hits isn't scary because it's like well that's not how people would experience it that's not it doesn't put you in that situation so i don't know it doesn't really work for me anyway um fergie from black eyed peas has a weirdly extended cameo kevin dylan is in this film that's matt dylan's monkey brother yeah um josh lucas is one of the survivors he's one of the heroes is two alpha males both kurt russell and josh lucas josh lucas is the bastard child of matthew mcconaughey and owen wilson i swear it no, he, uh, we've talked he's turning into kevin costner <laughs> now he's turning into kevin costner he's pretty smug but not very charismatic there is a really lovely performance by richard dreyfus um and it's quite his character is quite cool because he is kind of staring oblivion in the face before any of this begins his partner's left him and he feels like he wants to die anyway so when this happens it's like okay well maybe i don't want to die actually but unfortunately he just basically stops talking after 30 minutes of the film so okay um the script the script woof. kurt russell says at one point i used to be a fireman um josh lucas of course says the first thing he says is i work better on my own there's this other there's a young guy young hispanic guy who says oh i was a swimmer in high school oh how convenient everyone has their role it's like a film writing jigsaw but one of those like big clunky wooden jigsaws for kids and um you got these, enjoys. yeah you got these really really forced dramatic conflicts for no reason like just to fill in backstory like kevin dillon like they're trying to survive and kevin dillon just has a massive go at kurt russell about his political career and it's like well you wouldn't say that would you it's got nothing to do with what's happening <laughs> he's got um it's all very old school yeah, he's got the old school tropes um and it's just sets it's constantly setting up itself up for dramatic sacrifices but it also it's got absolutely no grip on reality whatsoever which again takes you out of the uh, out of the immediacy of the situation is a bit where josh lucas dives 50 feet into a pit of fire um <laughs> like because oil is like poured onto the surface of the water so he dives 50 feet into this pit of fire through the fire not knowing what's below the surface of the water because debris and stuff down there he would just die he would be incinerated and if he wasn't incinerated then he would hit something and die so yeah anyway so there is some tension in some of the set pieces but really most of the tension comes down to people yanking door handles and flashing lights so it's really <laughs> generic and predictable and you can you can guess who will die by what method and in what order based on their personality in this film it really is that Ooh. brainless um yes so you know exactly who's going to sacrifice themselves you know who is going to be kind of cosmically punished for their characters transgressions it's so obvious but yeah there you go it's not watching i've never seen this film and it's for the exact reasons that you i've never been a fan of like um disaster movies really mm. and there's something about disaster movies um like like on a, on a boat that they all seem the same that's why i really liked um what was that film with uh i really liked with robert redford last something all is lost 
all is lost. Like, I really like that because it was such a, like, a little sort of private character-driven yeah. thing, just about one bloke's reaction to things. The thing's getting slowly worse. But I just feel like there's only so long you can just watch people going, oh, and then ro- rolling on a boat and then just being wet and sitting there gasping and and saying, right, we've got to do this, so we've got to yeah. get contact. It's like, it's, they all seem to blend in my mind as the same. And I think that's why I didn't really watch. I don't think I've seen The Perfect Storm. Who's in The Perfect Storm? George Clooney, Mark Wahlberg. Um, Is it worth a watch? I think it's, I think it's okay because although it gets a little bit CGE towards the end, um, like the character stuff is pretty well done, I would say, and like is a genuine sense that these people know each other, they're from the same community and stuff. So the the script is okay, whereas what's really lacking in Poseidon is the script. Because right, okay. I mean, Wolfgang I, Peterson is, a, you know, he's a veteran director. He knows how to do these things, but it's just when you got a bad script, there's nothing you can do with that. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to watch this. I just think watch be... All Is Lost instead. Everyone should watch All Is Lost with Robert Redford. <laughs> there we go. That's that's sorted. Right then, this is my penultimate film. How many have you got kicking around? I've got two more. Oh, nice. So. Um, <clears throat> This is a film from 2019 called Haunt, um, which is produced by Eli Roth, but thankfully he had nothing further to do with it. Um, so this is this is a. I actually thought I'd seen this film before, but I'd watched another film with a sort of similar premise, but this is far superior to it. So this is about a load of um, uh, teenagers in their 30s in America <laughs> going, uh, they, they've got to like this like, crap kind of um, like university disco sort of, disco university like sort of party mm. and they kind of knock it on the head to get in a car and drive out to a they choose like a random kind of haunted house and um, when they get in there they're introduced with a, a, a clown uh, who doesn't speak and he kind of takes their mobile phones and they head in and it becomes quite clear that this isn't your average haunted house, Rupert. And maybe all mm. the kind of stuff they're going through, maybe it's real and they're going to uh. get stabbed up the arse. Um, I put this on as a kind of mindless horror, thinking uh, if it's if it's going to be really... Do you know when you put a film on and it's TV lit and you think, I'm not watching this, and instantly off, <laughs> like I did when I watched um, tried to watch Brian Dennehy in the Jack Reed series, not even in widescreen on Amazon Prime. Um, in, this is made for TV. I'm turning it off. This was actually, I was kept into it because at the start it was really like well lit and it was quite mm. lushly presented. And the acting was, yes, they're kind of, you know, sort of irritating guys in their late teens, but it kind of, and you've got, you know, the sort of the loud mouth chubby one. You've got the, um, the sort of sarcastic black girl. They're all very much uh, stereotypes, but what I liked about it is when things, when they get into this kind of haunted house and they're going through all the, um, the sort of little, you know, crawling through the, uh, going into coffins and getting spiders chucked on them and crawling through vents and whatever. Um, the, I like how they all react with absolute terror and kind of the, the, there's a, there's a seat, there's a guy in there, like a, who's actually dressed as a baseball player. Like he, that's his costume for Halloween. And I thought he was going to be this like save all jock, but I like it. There's a point in the film where it becomes clear, like where this is real. And these, these, um, masked figures in here are actually trying to kill us. This is like a real haunted house sort of thing. Mm. Um, horror house more than haunted house. Yeah. Um, 
they all react just with absolute terror. No one like takes control. And even when people do sort of make suggestions, they're like, oh, okay, then I'll, I'll just go on and see what's there. I'll just go around the next corner and see what's there. Like, I'll be back in a minute. Um, and, I, and I did like that, that they were just completely mortified. Um, the deaths are spaced apart, which is quite cool, actually, because it's not like... I had, I had visions of it being... Um, Everyone would die really quickly. We'd be left with the final girl, and it would just be her screaming and crying for forty-five minutes. But mm. it, it's 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 not that, you know. There are it's all spaced apart. It, there is a lot of tension, and I, without giving anything away, there's something about the masks in this film that I thought was really cool. I, I looked at reviews afterwards, mm. and people said, "Oh, yawn, nothing we haven't seen before." But I actually thought, well, I, I like the fact that it was like kids go to a haunted house, get killed, boom. I mean. Like that's fine yeah. if the film is, is well done. The then it's, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, there's you know you got the usual thing: the boyfriend, the the drunk boyfriend coming up to try and rescue them, and there's a you know it's a bit tick boxy in some respects, but the boxes they ticked are boxes I like to look at and watch get ticked. So um, that's a <laughs> it's a decent slasher. It's nice to see a modern decent slasher. Is it gory or is it? Tame? Yes. No, they're not oh. shy about uh, showing oh, okay. things that um, okay. that. that there's one, there was one death that really had me pushing my glasses up my nose and saying, crikey, Muck Moses. <laughs> I may have to watch this. Well, you I should. I clearly will watch it. There's absolutely yeah. no reason not to, is there? Yeah. So uh, where is, is it? Where is it available? Uh, it, was, it was on Netflix. Yeah, um, it's from the same people that wrote A Quiet Place. Right. Interesting. Okay. I'm going to check that out. It's called Haunt. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Also Netflix, Rim of the World. It's a rubbish title, isn't it? Yeah. It's a rubbish movie. Uh, so. A ring story. of the World or Rim, as in Rimmer rim, or Ring? Rim. Right. Right, okay. Um, so a diverse bunch of kids. Uh, ginger white kid, Hispanic kid, Asian kid, black kid. They separately go to this camp called Rim of the World because it's in the mountains, I guess. And they, anyway, they find themselves thrust together when aliens attack Earth, unleashing these bloodthirsty monsters. The weedy ginger kid is somehow tasked with transporting something or other to a facility. It's a MacGuffin, basically, but they have to get across to this facility with all these monsters around. The kids, they tra traverse like mountains, forests, really like decimated urban areas, and they're dodging aliens and crazy militants. And all the while they're arguing with each other and learning supposed life lessons. So this is directed by McGee, oh, known for <laughs> Charlie's Angels and... I think he did one of the Terminator films, maybe Salvation. <laughs> I, he's he's not exactly Tarkovsky, put it that way. But would you want Tarkovsky directing a monster movie for kids? No, you wouldn't. Except this film is not really for kids. And this is the weird thing about it. There are tons of really like angry expletives in it, including F-bombs, I'd mm. say. And the violence is pretty strong. So it's not it's not for the kids of the age of the kids in the film, certainly, because they're sort of like maybe early teens, possibly. I think what it is is for adult kids who imagine that this is what 80s kids' movies were like, or they remember what this is what 80s kids' movies were like, but they really weren't like this. The The soundtrack has got lots of 
2000s hip-hop and 80s hip-hop on it. Um, for, for all its faults, I would say that Stranger Things was sophisticated enough that it could be enjoyed by a multitude of ages, even though it did lean heavily into the nostalgia, obviously. It did have some adult themes in it. I mean, same goes for something like Summer of 84 or Super 8, for example, where they can be throwbacks to that period, but still appeal across ages. Um, but this is just, Rim of the World is just crass and stupid. And no amount of kids on push bikes and twiddly clarinets on the score can convince me it's a throwback to Spielberg. It just isn't. <laughs> and, and almost every moment where it appears to be aiming for any kind of sincerity, there has to be a punchline. Oh, it's, it's just so aggravating. Like there's one bit where the mother is saying goodbye to her son and it's sort of like this touching moment where it's like, you know, her trying to give him life advice and it's like the music swells and then it cuts away to all of the other kids watching her kiss him goodbye and it's like, ha ha ha, like look at him, what a nerd. And it's like, mm, well, that could have been a nice scene, but then it had to have a punchline. Or there's a bit where the kids learn, one of the kids learns to ride a bike because he has to get away sort of thing. And like, and the other kids are like, yeah, yeah, you're doing it. And the music's soaring and it's like this special moment. And then again, just stops dead because he falls off and like just in a really awkward way. And it's like, again, a punchline, an unfunny punchline to what could have been a decent scene. And yeah, constant references to other movies, like just direct references and like geek culture touchstones. It, it's generally quite well made in a kind of slick way although the visual filters are all over the shop and sometimes there'll be like a cut and the kids have gone from broad sunlight into just inky darkness for some reason. The action scenes are big in scale, but low in comprehensibility. They are, they're weirdly, the action's weirdly visceral. Um, so like, and really kind of brutal in that kind of transformers way where it's like, it has to be oddly like, nasty and realistic almost uh which makes all the kind of post-apocalypse fun times in between less convincing because it's like well they've just had these really harrowing experiences and yet they're going and like raiding shops and stuff and having fun i don't i don't believe you um and finally the adidas product placement is astonishing in this film they literally go to a mall and kit themselves out in adidas gear and then dance in slow motion down the street wearing adidas it's amazing when was this film made uh yeah last year maybe very recent yeah. awful I'm not, I'm not gonna watch that rupert no i wouldn't watch that um I realized that I've got an extra film as well. Sorry, I forgot about it. Um, so the, the one I'm going to um, I'm gonna do quickly is Route 666, starring Lou Diamond Phillips and Laurie Petty. This is an, a horror, fil horror film from 2001, two years after, fresh off the set of Bats, obviously. Um, this film isn't very good. Uh, it's... I knew it wasn't going to be very good from the start, to be honest, but I can't lie to you, because... It starts off with a dude in a bar reading like a, a Route 66 kind of guidebook. And just and the guy behind the bar actually is the guy who um in the very first Terminator sells Arnie the guns in the gun store. All right. And I think he's also um, a janitor in another horror film. 
Oh, he's in loads. He's in Gremlins yeah. and that. What's his name? Dick something? I can't remember. Anyway, Hello? he's in loads of stuff, isn't he? So, <laughs> Not Dick, I know. So, it starts off with Ludoma Phillips and Laurie Petty rocking up. And they protect, they, well, you think they're like, like drunk and newlyweds and they're like kissing at the bar and doing shots and stuff. And then irritating the other customers effectively. And then the, uh, the guy played by um, Stephen Williams goes into the toilet and Ludoma Phillips comes in, throws a lot of soap in his eyes and then reveals the US Marshals. And he's, he's like um, basically jump bail and they've got to take him back to LA. And... Mm-hmm. And then they kind of take him into a car, get attacked by Russian mobsters and, and drive off. And I thought, why why were you pretending, kissing and pretending to be a couple doing shots at a bar at the film just to kind of trick us, the viewers, for like three minutes? Because they, they would have just, if they were really FBI agents, they would have just come in and said, right, come with us, we found mm-hmm. you. Um, he also says, you're really easy to find. And I thought, how though? Because this is kind of pre-mobile phones, and he's in a bar in the middle of a desert that's two and a half thousand miles long. So I'm quite intrigued how you find him actually. Um, so yeah, and they they get uh, in a car, and as they're driving back to LA, <laughs> Laurie Petty says to Lou Diamond Phillips, who she claims is like a ex CIA operative, special forces, Navy SEAL. We see none of that. What we do see is him firing blindly at people and not hitting anything. And then basically being guided along the plot by random happenstance. They are driving down this desert, which I did research. It is two and a half thousand miles long. And Laurie Petty says to him, oh, didn't your father that you never met die out here? And Ludum Phillips says, yeah, I never met him. Bit of backstory. Cats. And he says, hang on, what's that? Are they pull up? Boom. His gravestone next to the road. And then as as they approach the gravestone, um, and one of the FBI agents with them says, oh, this is, this is um, whatever his name is, Della Rocca's grave. Oh, yeah, he was actually part of a chain gang uh, in the 60s and just reels off this like thing about how they were killed mysteriously and, and buried under the tarmac where they were like escaped prisoners building a road. And Ludemar Phillips says, how do you know all this? And he says, oh, I'm a student of like crime history. I thought, that's handy, isn't it? That you were there just to sp- specifically explain that plot. And then he gets into a fist fight with Ludomir Phillips, who gets the shit kicked out of him. <laughs> and, and then they get attacked by the zombies. Um, of they, they keep on referring to them, sorry, as zombies, but they're ghosts. Uh, the ghosts of this, this four members of this chain gang uh, that haunt this section of highway in the film is just completely on rails from then on. There's just scene after scene in this film of basically... Laurie Petty and, and Ludemar Phillips having no idea how to cope with what's going on because these ghosts, you can't shoot them, you can't attack them at all. And then Ludemar Phillips just like finds a shaman who just tells him exactly how to kill them, and he does, and the film ends. And that is that. What's it called again? I've forgotten even the title. Route 666. Right. Uh, even the introduction sequence was yeah. irritating. It, the introduction sequence comes up by like showing the name and then showing some like road, and then it'll flash up with the name again, getting closer, and then flash up a third time on the screen as if it's an approaching sign. But it does it for about six or seven minutes with the entire cast and crew. God, so I was like, right, it's really irritating. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, the I'm music irritated just is, hearing about it. The music is this constant like sort of twanging cheesy blues guitar. And like no one in the film can really act. Uh, there's a bit of nice banter between um, 
Lou Diamond Phillips and Stephen Williams is like a, a sort of fast jive talking character. They're trying to get mm. back. That's kind of funny, but it's not enough to just save them from just really bad. The way the go you and if you like any of the footage in this film and you miss it, don't worry because it'll be it'll be repeated at some point. The, the it shows the sequence from how the ghosts turn up. It shows about two or three times, and it's the same footage from the same bit of desert. And the way they turn up is. It reminds me of like early '90s Metallica music videos. It's mm. just, it's so not enjoyable. It's one you could probably watch with some friends and have a laugh, but don't watch it by yourself like I did. <laughs> <laughs> might just send you over the edge. Uh, Speaking of repeated footage, there's a bit of repeated footage in Final Recall, which is my final film of the evening. Um. This is on Prime, obviously. I I chose to watch this because it had Wesley Snipes in it. It is a cheap horror film, horror sci-fi film from 2017. What's this called? And today? it's not com- Final Recall. Fair enough. I'm not actually sure why it's called that, you know. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, it's not completely hateful. Um so basically these young groovy young people all complete burners man and woman alike they go for a like a frat party in a remote house um a nice house though like that you know belong to a relative or whatever and they're not too insanely annoying well the two main ones aren't anyway they're quite likable in a way meanwhile aliens have arrived um on planet earth by these colossal storms which are spreading across the world so it looks like the end of times. Wesley Snipes, meanwhile, he plays a grizzled hunter slash survivalist um, living nearby. Maybe the kids will need him. Mm. So there are some scenes early on in this film which are astonishing. There's a bit where the the kids they they go out and by this lake and they go for a wander in the woods and they find the they find this hut in the woods with like fresh pelts hanging outside and a functioning radio inside. And they conclude, oh, this, this is abandoned. It's like, well, it's clearly not, though, is it? It's clearly belongs to Wesley Snipes. But anyway. <laughs> uh, um, there's a note on the door that says, back in five minutes, Wesley. <laughs> there's some forced alpha male infighting to create tension in the group, which is disappointing, purely to push the plot contrivances absolutely nothing to do with crafting character or building empathy anyway wesley Snipes basically does nothing in this film for the first 45 minutes he just mopes around spying on the kids and but when he does arrive things do pick up a bit and he he's quite funny because he he says things like stop your whining when someone's leg is lacerated by a bear trap and he'll say things like time to dance or oh god he even says almost to the camera he says welcome back remember me we do remember you Wes we do but before you went to prison for tax evasion (laughs) we remember that (laughs) it's not quite clear why the kids are so distrustful of him when he literally is their only hope for survival I mean the world is ending and he is the one person who seems to have any possibility of helping them to survive anyway there's the editing in this film is really, really shoddy. There's this constant little micro mistimings is all I can call them, really. Like you'll have like this moment where someone's looking at a, a computer screen and there's like a progress bar on it, like going up, obviously. Now it cuts away 
and then it cuts back to the screen and the bar is just sort of resuming in the same place if you see what i mean the progress so it's like very obvious that that was bad editing um or or two or there'll be like a sudden loud noise say and two people obviously have the same react jump reaction but what the film will do is it will cut between them in a sequential way so it'll be as if one person reacted (laughs) and then the next person it's like what anyway and the action seems pretty bad it reminds me of something else that happened in um, Route 666 where, uh, like, what's his name? Lou Diamond Phillips keeps on having visions of the past and he and he has them. And for a start, someone, usually Laurie Petty, will go, Jack, Jack, as he like, and he like looks looks at the floor and he's like, his eyes are shaking and he's like looking around panicked and she's like, Jack, 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 Jack. <laughs> jack and then his vision will start um so it'll like it'll start and he'll have a vision of something and then it'll cut back and it'll use the same footage that was happening before they went into the vision and it happens a few times like someone ask him a question he'll look off and like um sort of look panicked and start sweating and looking around having this vision and then the vision will end and then they'll show the scene from just before it again and it's like why why i haven't forgotten i haven't forgotten the question that was asked 15 seconds ago <laughs> but, uh, yeah yeah um yeah so the action scenes are pretty bad but it's not because of the quick cuts problem it's because of wrong cuts <laughs> like if you imagine like the cuts which cut between things and they mess up the relative space between people so you don't know where people are in relation to each other it's that kind of bad editing Anyway, on the plus side, it is not not without unpredictability. So on the surface, it's kind of Independence Day meets the Evil Dead, except it's nowhere near as good as that sounds. Um, mm. And it, it, But it's, it's very fast moving and the lighting is good. So that's good. It's some pretty ropey CGI, although the actual alien close-ups are done with puppets and people in suits, so that's good. There's a lot of the mid-film, them hanging around in a shack, feeding each other backstories about their own tragedies and the history of alien invasions. Um, and there's it keeps cutting away to boring officials and colonels getting updates on screen, so you can forget about that stuff. It doesn't have the gore or the tension or the scares to satisfy horror fans. Um, but it does have some like out-there sci-fi ideas towards the end. Um, I mean, when they, they sort of spit of a spoiler, they, they go into an alien spaceship, essentially. And it's at least it's an interesting way to f- like see out the film. I mean, the alien technology, to be honest, it looks like an episode of Farscape or something is pretty, pretty shoddy. But at least <laughs> it's it has something going on, something a bit different. It does take a turn. Uh, and the music... The score has quite a nice mysterious quality to it. It's not not too bombastic. And so, yeah, it's trash sci-fi with half a brain or maybe just a quarter of a brain. But it does, it does it's not entirely without merit. And it outrageously sets itself up for a sequel at the end. <sighs> and that will not happen. A sequel that I wager will never come. Uh, that that is one I might watch actually, just because the last time I saw Wesley Snipes was in, I think The Expendables three, and I thought, oh, he's going to make some films, and then he just didn't. So it might be mm. nice to see him again. Um, 
my last film are you done now i am done my last film is left behind with nicholas cage which is a film this is a christian film which which isn't i've never seen a christian film before but this was like marketed and when i looked at it on wikipedia said this is a christian film about about the rapture so it's like oh as an as an irreligious man, am I gonna? How much am I gonna get from this like gentle drama? <laughs> <laughs> so the the story is that Nicolas Cage is a pilot who is uh, cheating on his wife effectively, um, and his daughter is coming back to vi- sort of visit the family. She's in university somewhere, and she bumps into her dad at the airport as she's kind of laughing as he's taken off, and she notices he hasn't got his wedding ring on, and he says, "Oh, I never wear my wedding ring. It's always in the car. I'm not having an affair with that hot air host." That's behind me, waiting for me to go on the plane after we've had this conversation. Um, he seduces her by getting a ticket to a U2 concert. Oh my God. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and, and it's so funny because when when she's like, oh, you, you having an affair? He's like, nah, be silly. Anyway, i got to shoot off. I'll, I'll see you next time you're home because I'm going to miss you now. He gets on that plane with not a scrap of luggage. He is staying in London for an indefinite amount of time, going to a concert, and he is in full pilot uniform. He hasn't even got a carrier bag with some spare kegs. Um, so it's amazing. Anyway, so he gets on the plane. He gets to the plane, which uh, is constantly enshrouded in like neon black darkness, whilst the rest of the film, in the same time zone, takes place in blazing California sunshine. And, and then it's just him on a plane as randomly uh, uh, like a couple of hours into the flight as they're going to London, like basically a load of the world's population just disappear. And initially everyone is like, no idea what's happening. Where have they gone as aliens? I know what's happening because it's the Christian rapture. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's that, there's that block that's gone. Um, it is a re- weirdly boring film because it's everything's really gentle. There's no like, there's no blood or any apart from people disappearing. It's mm. got this weirdly sort of cynical view of those of us that don't believe in God, <laughs> because mm. the second, the second in the mall when um, the the main girl's Nicholas Cage's daughter, her brother goes missing, and she's like literally hugging him, and then all of a sudden she's just holding clothes, and he is gone, and all the other children are gone. It's quite a nice scene where. Or you just see a lot of balloons floating up in this wall where all the kids have just like bugged off. Um, mm. Everyone just starts looting and panicking and like just crashing cars and stuff. <laughs> but, what? And people just running over and just pushing old women out the way, nicking TVs. And I thought, I don't think it'll be quite like that, that instantly. Um, there's a few moments where uh, like a play, like a, you know, a sort of single engine Cessna thing will, She'll be like trying to get into a car, and it'll just cut. obviously there's no pilots. We'll like smash into the car park, that kind of thing. But it very quickly just turns into everyone panicking, and then cutting to a weirdly calm Nicolas Cage uh, on this plane, where like half of the half of the um, sort of staff and passengers have disappeared, and it's ages before they work out what's going on. So it's a lot of bickering and arguing, and like, oh, where have they gone? Maybe it's aliens. Don't be stupid. And you've mm. got. In the first class ca- uh, compartment, you've got um, like an investigative reporter, uh, uh, a Muslim man, uh, a little person, a black woman. You know what I mean? And it's just okay. them just 
just having these like tedious conversations, instantly panicking. And weirdly, everyone constantly banging on the pilot's door, asking Nicolas Cage what's going on. And I thought, why why would he know? He's a pilot. Like, <laughs> why, why would he know what's going on? Yeah, it's like he this, caused it. Yeah. And there's a sequence as well where it was really funny, where he's just sat there and uh, he works out because his co-pilot disappeared. And he picks up his watch and on his watch it says 316 john 316 on the watch mm. and then he finds one of the other uh sort of uh stewards in her in her belongings it says she has bible study he can't get hold of his wife on his satellite phone and she's a deep religious woman so he says to the the air steward that's there he says to her the one he's having an affair with right i think i know what's going on it's the rapture i'm just gonna go and uh just gonna go and just gonna go and tell everyone what's going on and he just mm. walks walks out of the cockpit and just leaves like an unmanned plane mid-flight. <laughs> and I thought, would, would that happen? Would that happen? <laughs> because we've seen another plane that you almost hit when the pilots disappear, and it careens towards the ground, doesn't it, when there's no one there to fly? Um, yeah, so it's it's just silly, and it's cheap. And Nicolas Cage is, he is sleepwalking through this. Um <laughs> And and it's just it it just says nothing. It, it's not even. I thought it would be really preachy, but basically everyone disappears, and then they, I'm just going to spoil the film. They land the plane, and then that's it. It's like no. It's like it's so busy trying not to offend anyone that it doesn't actually say anything. Oh, Jesus. So I can't even imagine it would please anyone who's like of a religious bent that would kind of get something from the film because it's just this really like flat family drama mixed with some sort of light peril jesus okay so that's my film of the week (laughs) yes well we do need to choose a film of the week don't we yeah i mean it's been a half hour usually i potter through all of my films but i'm looking at them it's been a pretty solid week i enjoyed the commuter enjoyed meg uh cleansing was cool really liked the chase for me i was I'm going to go with a higher budget one and I'm going to choose body of lies uh, because it really was tense. And Mm. you kind of forget sometimes how much, well, I forget sometimes how much I like Leonardo DiCaprio. And then I watch him in films and then actually I do really enjoy seeing you in films. So, and I'm Mm. this like a bit of a hidden gem from 2008 that passed me by. So for me, it's body of lies. Okay. Well, for Mark Strong's jawline. It has been a strong week, actually. I, I mean, the only really bad film, well, it's Night of the Demons was terrible, and so was Rim of the World. But other than that, they've all been pretty solid. I mean, obviously, the cleansing is good, but we can't vote for that because of a conflict of interests. But uh, so I would say, and Mank was good, but not for everyone. I would Inter- say. Interesting that Mank is neither of our films of the week, and yet mm. it's been pretty played. Yeah. I actually yeah. forgot about it. I've seen it, it wasn't on my list. Well, it's very film critic friendly when you think about it because it's about it's about the industry isn't it and it's yeah. in black and white and you know it's got oscar winners in it but it is a good film just perhaps not for everyone i'm gonna go with splice i think again not really for everyone but it's it's i it could have been a terrible film and it's actually really good like it's that kind of like conceptually it could have been absolutely awful but somehow it turns out to be much better than average if you know what i mean like um (laughs) so it could have gone either way but yeah um and the fact that it just chooses to go dark places and it's proper body horror like it 
a lot. So nice. that's it. What? Splice. I cannot imagine that we'll have this many films next time because I really want a rampage over the weekend. But um, yeah, I'm. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Two interesting yep. films of the weekend. Um, I'll see if I can find some more corporate espionage thrillers for next time. She could. That'd be great. <laughs> I love you.